everybody here back from the first few holy days of the passover celebration and great news we're leaving together but still it's farewell and maybe we'll come back to earth who can tell i guess there is no one to blame the leaving ground leaving ground will things ever be the same again it's the final countdown okay i've been reading a biography of of Thomas Hobbes and I wasn't planning on streaming today I was enjoying taking this extra time for prayer for meditation for contemplation for study for getting in touch with you know what truly matters in life stepping away from just you know giving my opinions on all sorts of sundry matters but this biography of Thomas Hobbes is just too damn exciting it would just be too damn selfish for me to keep this biography all to myself so I have to live stream talk about Thomas Hobbes versus John Locke on the state of nature. This is the final countdown. Who really wins between these two great uh, Enlightenment figures? And to set the stage, let's let's begin as we always do with Dennis Prager's column from April 4. Could it happen here? It is happening here. So when you hear the question, could it happen here? That is universally taken to signify Nazi Germany, which is in popular imagination, the most evil regime that has ever existed. So is it happening here? Dennis Prager says, yeah, it's happening here. My God. And we'll keep an eye on the news. We got a Fox News alert appeal hearing set for Wall Street Journal report held in Russia. Okay. So uh, Dennis Prager says, our universities in America have become moral and intellectual wastelands almost as ideologically pure as Moscow State University was in the Soviet era. So how many people really think that uh, Stanford and Duke and Harvard and Yale are as ideologically pure as Moscow State University was in the Soviet era? Right? That's ridiculous. And to provide evidence, Dennis says, as of December 2022, there are seven times more administrators at Stanford University than faculty. I, I don't see that that means that we're becoming more like the Soviet Union. Our medical schools are embracing Soviet-like science. In more and more of them, incoming doctors are instructed not to use the terms male and female. Harvard Medical School officials use the terms pregnant and birthing people rather than pregnant women. And Children's Hospital using hormone blockers, which can impair future reproductive functioning and mutilating perfectly healthy teenagers. So then where, Dennis Prager, would you prefer to get your medical care? All right, if... If uh, American medical care is heading on the Soviet model, then where would you prefer to go for your medical care? Would you prefer to go to Canada, to England? You're rich enough. You could fly to France or Germany or Nigeria or North Korea or China. Okay, if uh, the United States is such a hellscape, where do you get better medical care? Where on earth? And was medical care really better 10, 15, 20 years ago than it is today? So... This strikes me as a dramatic overstatement. Students at elite law schools such as Stanford and Yale behave as if they were members of Com Komsomol, the Soviet Communist Youth League. Really? So are they dragging people after the gulag? I mean, how many conservative speakers have been murdered at Stanford and Yale? Right? That's what Komsomol used to do, right? In, in conjunction with the other Soviet Union forces, such as the secret police, they would drag people and torture them and beat them and murder them. So however bad it is at Stanford and Yale, I don't believe that is what's going on. 
On the rare occasions that conservative speakers come to their campuses to give a lecture, students heckle, shout, and curse at them, disrupting their ability to speak in ways reminiscent of the Hitler Youth in 1930s Germany. So students heckling, shouting, and cursing at speakers, is that something that is just primarily primarily, primarily relegated to Nazi Germany in the 1930s? I am going to wager, I'm going to step out on a limb, and I have not read a comprehensive uh, meta-analysis of student reactions to public speakers in universities going back to the 14th century. But I'm going to suspect that uh, jeering and heckling is not unique to Hitler's Nazi Germany. I'm going to suspect that this has been going on a long time in a lot of places, and to say that this is reminiscent of Nazi Germany. Why isn't it reminiscent, I don't know, of uh, 1900s England or 1880s America or 1930s Sydney, Australia? I suspect that students have been heckling and jeering speakers, and I suspect that people all over the world have been heckling and jeering at speakers since time immemorial. All right, when you've got a universal condition, which is publicly disagreeing, heckling, and shouting down speakers, I suspect right, that it's not Nazi Germany that we're entering into. I suspect, I'm going to step out on a limb here, it's not the final countdown. Ooh, the final countdown. Could it happen here? It's happening here. It's the final countdown. Oh. The greatest of all freedoms, that of speech, is disappearing. So Dennis Prager has a nationally syndicated <laughs> talk show. He uh, talks about the six billion views that Prager University uh, gets. To, I mean, if that's a suppression, suppression of speech, all right, then <laughs> would you not like that suppression of speech? Would you not like the ability to speak to millions of people, right, nationally syndicated radio show? But it's just like Nazi Germany, guys. It's just like the Soviet Union, America in 2023. It's the, say it together, the final countdown. Okay, yeah, song by Europe. I just watched the Tetris movie, all right? And I've never played Tetris. I don't really have any interest in video games, but it seemed exciting. Apparently, Tetris was a video game developed in, in the Soviet Union, which is pretty cool. And so there was lots of cool stuff, you know, cloak and dagger, businessman going over there to try to secure rights and at one point he goes out with the inventor of the tetris game and they go to this underground club and the whole club is belting out the lyrics to the final countdown it's the final countdown is a bunch of trannies beating the crap out of a woman suppression of speech bro yeah i think it is but i suspect that uh, there were people who were beaten prior to Nazi Germany and prior to the Soviet Union. I'm going to suspect, I'm going to go out on a limb, I have not read a comprehensive meta-analysis of beatings in reaction to speech, all right, down through human history. But I am going to go out on a limb and suggest that that happened prior to the Soviet Union, prior to Nazi Germany. In fact, it has been going on. I'm going to wage it not just for hundreds of years, not just for thousands of years, I'm going to wager that's gone on for millions of years. If you didn't like someone's speech, 
right you beat the crap out of them i'm gonna wager that that's a you know fairly common human reaction that there's nothing distinctly nazi or soviet about reacting to speech you don't like with a punch in the face in fact i have been rather outspoken at times and you're going to be shocked and amazed to learn that sometimes people have taken exception to things that i've said and found it offensive and in reaction to offensive things i've said People have punched me in the face. People have knocked me down. Uh, Jim Otto Jr., right, he he is the son of the uh, Oakland Raider uh, great center, right, Jim Otto Jr., right, and he played linebacker at uh, Placer High School. And he was a mean dude. He was one mean dude. So his dad, 20 years, he was a starting center for the Oakland Raiders in the NFL. And then his son was a very mean linebacker. And he would torment me. And when he didn't appreciate something I'd written in the Placer High School Hillman Messenger newspaper, it was the final countdown. He picked me up and threw me in a trash can. And so I was just curious because I started watching a doco on uh, Jim Otto and how you know, how ravaged football, uh, how, how he's been ravaged by his, his time in football. And so I, I looked up uh, Jim Otto Jr. And this guy who was so mean, he, he was a bully. He was just cold. He was a linebacker at Placer High School. He's now a pastor, right? Jim came to pastor Teton Valley Bible Church in 2009. He's been married to the love of his life for 30 years. They have four adult children. He's a graduate of Utah State University. 1989 he's got a certificate in bible and he's been to the master semin seminary he's got a master's degree he served in college ministry for 14 years jim loves the lord jesus and his greatest desire is to see christ glorified by his people loving and walking closely with the lord wow i wish i would have gotten to know this jim otto at placer high school but i was fairly obnoxious in placer high school all right Jim Otto Jr.'s animus towards me in Placer High School did not come out of the blue because I was somewhat outspoken. I was somewhat annoying. I enjoyed antagonizing people. And he reacted by trashing me. His favorite books are Knowing God by J.I. Packer and The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. His current interest is on the teaching of the Puritans, Puritans with special attention to the doctrine of sanctification as it relates to the affections of the heart. Jim enjoys time with his family and time in the mountains to meditate, cross-country ski, hunt, and occasionally fish. So I suspect he no longer picks up journos and throws them in the trash can. <laughs> oh, so he'd really beat the crap out of 40 now for converting. <laughs> but I know one other guy from Placer High School who was like this mean football player. I just call him Steve P. And Steve P was so mean. How mean was he? He was so mean that when I just looked at him, I just... You know, I was like, wanted to keep my distance. And then I, after I graduated high school, I went back to Australia for a year. I came back, I ran into him, and he was just the kindest, sweetest, nicest, most loving guy. He was married, he had kids. He found Jesus. He had a genuine experience of Jesus Christ. It completely transformed his character. So there are two blokes who I knew in high school who seemed like real mean dudes who have been completely transformed by Jesus Christ. It's the final countdown. Wow. Okay, back to this uh, Dennis Prager column. All right, the greatest of all freedoms out of speech is disappearing. All right, we have more legally protected freedoms 
<clears throat> with regard to speech in, in the United States than uh, any other country on earth of which I'm aware, right? There's a price to be paid, and uh, right? If, if you give speech that people don't like, they're going to hurt you. That's the way it's always been in human history. And there are more, say, social restrictions on speech short of legal restrictions, and uh, big tech is censoring speech much more. But overall, to, to say that, you know, free speech is disappearing in the United States, it's being modified, right? Thanks to blockchain technology, we can say pretty much anything we want right now over the, the platforms like Odyssey, right? So blockchain platforms, all right, we can speak freely. So yeah, we have more restrictions in the way we speak on big tech platforms today, but we have other platforms where we have tremendous free speech. Right now, I am enjoying seven live viewers on Rumble, right? You can pretty much say anything that you want to say on, on Rumble, you know, within reason. Right? You can't single out any particular race. So right now, I've got seven live viewers on Rumble, only six on YouTube, and one, I, I, I assume I've got Pigger, Pigger from Israel watching right now on Odyssey. It's the final countdown. We're leaving together, but still it's farewell. And right now over Twitter, I'm going out live over Twitter. One live viewer over Twitter. And that's not counting one, two, three, four, five live viewers over Facebook. Wow. This is exciting. So in some ways, we have less free speech now than we did 10 years ago, practically speaking. In other ways, we have more. Trashing 40, the Jim Otto story. Okay, the final countdown. Since Lenin, no left-wing institution or country has ever allowed dissent, and the left in America is no exception. Well, it depends on what kind of dissent, all right? All, all regimes of, of limited speech. Uh, is, is there ever a nation that has not limited speech? Almost half of all college students now say they do not believe in free speech for hate speech. Yes, so there has been a significant decrease in support for free speech on the left in the last 15 years. Lunacy has replaced reason. H has there ever been a time in human history in this nation or any other nation where many people have not replaced reason with lunacy? Right? That happens. It doesn't mean we're turning into Nazi Germany. right? It, it doesn't mean that we're becoming like the Soviet Union. It doesn't mean that it's the final countdown. So in Ontario, Canada's most populous province, the provincial agency in charge of education stands the notion that there's only one correct answer in mathematics. Uh, that notion is an expression of white supremacy. All right, has there ever been a time when bureaucrats or groups or people have not said stupid things, right? That doesn't mean that we're turning into Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. The Oregon Education Department has announced the same thing. The American Medical Association has declared that no American birth certificate should list the sex or gender of a child. The child will decide that later. Yeah, that's all crazy. Has there ever been a time where a significant proportion of the population has not been crazy? Right. Many of Trump supporters believed that the 2020 election was rigged and that uh, Joe Biden only won on the basis of voter fraud. On an empirical basis, that, that belief is crazy. Teachers across the country are robbing children as young as five of their innocence. They are routinely taken to drag queen shows where men in women's clothing dance with them. Routinely. So what, 50% of children 
you know, four or five years of age being taken to drag queen shows. I suspect that it's less. I suspect it's probably under, under 10. Yeah, so Kendall Roy signed me up as the first major journalist for the 100, and now I'm not sure they're really on board with that project. What did 40 read over a four-day yontif? It's time to book shame non-readers. One of the things that most endeared me to people was uh, book shaming people. So I've been looking through here. I'll show you. I've been reading the uh, this Koran translation of the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Bible. And I've also been reading this uh this anonymous book here by an anonymous 12-step program with regard to sex and love addiction. So those are some of the things that I've been reading. And I've been reading this two-part series on Jews in American English departments at university. So you guys watching Lucky Hank? So it's by the, the actor who played Saul Goodman in Better Call Saul. So he's now an, a mediocre English professor and department chair at a mediocre liberal arts college in new jersey lucky hank uh, pretty good show i'm four episodes in okay back to this dennis prager column in the COVID era the centers for disease control and prevention national institutes of health and virtually every other national medical and health agency largely abandoned science and even elementary decency and became tools of the left really they they just abandoned science uh, on what basis do you say that now I'm sure that there were things that we did wrong with regard to COVID and lockdowns, uh, but also there were things that they did right. I think that overall, right, we, we did, the government, meaning people in power, did more right things than wrong things, particularly with regard to, say, the first, uh, first six months, nine months, first year of the virus. Uh, I do think many of the lockdowns went on too long and were too strict. They and America's Sovietized teachers' unions ruined millions of American children by closing schools for nearly two years. All right. I think that was wrong, closing schools for two years in reaction to COVID, but I don't believe it ruined millions of children, right? I think they were damaged, right? But children are incredibly resilient. I mean, when I was a kid, I was bounced off the walls all the time. Look how I turned out. Like, I was smacked around all the time as a kid. Look how I turned out. I was resilient. I'd bounce off that wall and I'd, I'd jump right up and praise Jesus. All right? So kids are resilient. Half Galician says, I'm now blocked by the leading minds in Western thought. Man, I'm so sorry. But yeah, kids are resilient. I mean, e even if their schools were closed for, for two years, right, their lives were not ruined. That's the death now for any guest on the 40 show. So what books have you read lately? Translation, bye-bye. Yeah, Claire Court. Claire Court made this accusation on Stephen J. James's show that I don't have her on this show anymore because she doesn't read books. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that's largely correct. I, I do lose interest, generally speaking, in books who, in guests who don't read books. Half-Galician says, I'm now blocked by the leading minds in Western thought, Keith Woods, Otto Paul, and Casey. I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel for you. Now, the question to ask, was there anything that you did that contributed to you getting blocked by Keith Woods, Otto Paul, and Casey? In general, I find that if you 
disagree with someone and you make public your disagreement, it's very likely you're going to be blocked by anyone who's sensitive. So, for example, Sam Harris blocked uh, that Wright bloke. Who does Mickey Kaus do his shows with? Robert Wright. Yeah. So when Robert Wright wrote a, a moderately critical article about uh, Sam Harris, Sam Harris just blocked him. Oh, who's that uh, Russian computer dude who does does a lot of shows and is publicly advertising for, for a mate? And he does like these three-hour shows. Lex Friedman. All right. The, the mildest of mild criticisms would just automatically get you blocked by Lex Friedman. And from his Reddit, which he claims is independently moderated, but the moderation of uh, Lex Friedman's Reddit seems very much as though Lex Friedman is actually moderating it. I really don't see how people block on a public forum. You can mute, but blocking is censorship. It shows both how weak you are and how weak your argument is. I used to block people until I realized that I could mute them. <laughs> so I blocked without realizing the power of muting. And then I, there was even a time I muted Dennis Dale, and I'm afraid I've still got Dennis Dale muted. I need to unmute Dennis Dale. So he was going after me for some reason. And I hope I haven't. No, I don't have Dennis Dale muted. So I just, just very briefly, I, I muted my my friend, Dennis Dale. Uh, but uh, well, yeah. Once I learned to mute, no longer needed to to block. Okay, in addition to the doomsday hysteria over climate change, the imposed gender confusion and absence of religion, this has led to the highest rates of adolescent depression and suicide ever recorded in America. Is that actually true? Open question. And is it all because of uh, COVID lockdowns? Our Justice Department. About half of our judges and our security agencies are well on their way to becoming what the Soviet Ministry of Justice were, tools of the ruling party. Uh, is it any worse than it's been under Republican administrations? Right, Republican administrations suspend certain national attorneys for the Justice Department, replace them with others who are more more friendly to their to their point of view. Uh, I'm really not sure that Joe Biden is any worse. But but Dennis Prager at his radio show, I couldn't believe it. He said Joe Biden and most of the Democratic Party in Congress and in governorships would be perfectly at ease in the Soviet state. So he, he really believes that it's the final countdown for liberty. Oh, let's see. Who do we have coming in here? We've got Duvid. Duvid, how's it going, man? How's your, how's your Passover? Hey, Broker Shem, happy Passover. And uh, were you... Were you getting back into the community? Were you more social, or did you do this on your own? I did on my own. In fact, with my family, my parents and my brother and sister showed up for the first night of Passover. But the night, I still haven't went back to synagogue. And uh, why not? Why not go back to synagogue? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess I'm trying to... Uh, um like figure something new out with my life so uh yeah i'm not sure you know there's anything really i mean there's synagogue uh you know so the only place near me is the young israel it's kind of like a member synagogue where you have to pay i'm not sure i really have yeah i'm not really tight with anybody there so uh yeah i just thought 
you know, God forbid, I, I got to move on my life in some way that I, that uh, I probably didn't have any future, uh, you know, trying to, I don't know, say fit in with the community there or whatever. I'm not, not sure exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a lot of uh, single men in their, you know, in their 40s who basically stopped going to synagogue, Orthodox synagogue, because it, it doesn't really seem to, to fit with the traditional way of life. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, uh, you know, kind of like, okay, like, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he old and unmarried? And and it's probably more detrimental. Like, if, if I'm going to be successful in moving on with my life, um, it's probably you going to be more difficult to, you know, with, within an Orthodox synagogue. Although I still semi do the Orthodox practices. I, you know, I made the Seder. I said all the prayers. Um, you know, still doing my best to celebrate Passover in a uh, you know, traditional way, but uh, you know, just kind of being like, I don't know, like a fifth tire at a, a synagogue or, you know, out of place, uh, older bachelor. Um, yeah. I th I'm trying to figure out some you know, way to move on with my life. Yeah. So living in Orthodox community is, is challenging. All right. It, uh, it really, you you become joined to a much bigger group. There's a tremendous loss of privacy, and there's also a strong, you know, a strong pressure to assimilate to the norms of the synagogue. But so so for me, let me just list off the biggest challenges for me. The biggest challenges for me have been, you know, avoiding ticking people off because I often have so just enjoyed annoying people, ticking them off. You know, I, I would feel strong and powerful when they would lose their temper at me. Uh, so learning to get along with people, avoiding uh, needlessly antagonizing people, and then the, the, the pressure to conform and, to, and the restrictions on freedom that have come along with that, uh, those have been uh, big challenges for me. So what have been the biggest challenges for you to flourishing and to enjoying living inside an Orthodox community? Um, well, I thought, when, when I lived in New York, I, I had, you know, somewhat as an outsider role within the community, you know, some success. And when I came back to Metro Detroit, um, yeah, I, I never really fit, uh, fit in. You know, like I was, I was peripherally part of it. I'm sure I could go to synagogue and, you know, people are relatively nice. Like I've, I've been reasonably good at, uh, I don't think I, you know, I've, had really behavioral issues or anything like that where you know but uh you know there's a level of extreme i don't know where the right word skepticism or uh you're just fear in the community especially with like rising anti-semitism and uh you, know, you turn like that critical eye upon me so like you know, like when you show up in the community there's a lot of uh critical eyes like you know like he's not doing it right or, or he's a danger to the community and uh you know, so you could be peripherally part of the community like you know just go to synagogue uh, have some level of friendships uh you know out, outer business connections people to speak to but uh, i was never an insider in the detroit community well, i went to the schools as a kid i you know know a lot of the people uh still work with uh, chabad or, or various uh organization so I, I was never able to successfully integrate here in uh, metro detroit in new york um 
I was able to integrate largely by serving rabbis and having some sort of peripheral function where I was in the Hasidic community as a kind of like accepted outsider. And as an accepted outsider, I you know, did things for the community and, uh, you know, was kind of, uh, I guess, accepted as an accepted outsider. And I'm not sure in you know, Metro Detroit, there's a large enough community or it's more secularized where, where there's not such a clear distinction why they would even need an accepted outsider or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in New York, that you'd find a lot more people like you, bachelors in, into their 40s, while in Detroit Orthodoxy, I assume that's more rare. Well, I was younger then. Like, I mean, I left, I left uh, New York about 30 and I was becoming an older bachelor. Uh, but even that, it wasn't surprising to people that I was becoming an older bachelor because it was like, uh, you know, like I was a half Jew as an outsider who would want to marry me, God forbid. Uh, and, you know, in Detroit, you know, I either tried to blend in or um, it's just a different scenario because, you know, like there's only a few thousand Orthodox Jews and they live in you know, relatively the poor section of uh, the suburbs. And you know, near me, they have modern Orthodox and the modern Orthodox are, you know, like relatively like I was more religious than them. Like most of them don't wear yarmulkes, except when they go to synagogue and are pretty integrated besides when, uh, you know, assimilated besides when they go to a synagogue you know, there's also a lot of political type issues with the uh, you know zionism community stances uh i'm not sure if you can like you know thinking back to when i was in new york if you would consider yourself integrated or you're integrated as an accepted outsider or if you think like you're integrated like you're one of one of the, one of the crew but or, or you think you're more like i was saying you're you became an accepted outsider i i i feel pretty much fully integrated but uh integrated that, as an a, outsider or integrated as one of them i feel integrated as one of them but uh it's it's a great question to to ponder i i, I like the question i was have you seen this freedom advisal williamsburg uh tours you know uh, yeah Pacific yeah. So I, I thought he interviewed this African American, like half Jewish, that was part of uh, Satmar recently, and she was kind of talking like the accepted outsider, and you know, so I'm using that terminology, and that, you know, basically how I felt in Hasidic uh, Brooklyn, even in uh, you know Israel was a different story. Uh, you know, I was there like you know saying like you know, become part of it because I'm in Israel. There's no uh, Jewish Gentile distinction at least there. Like I wouldn't have been like an Arab. So I would have uh, you know, went for the full Hasidic and like, you know, but uh, um, th th there's also the extended family community because most people who are part of the Orthodox community have extremely large family networks. Most people even know distant relations in the modern Orthodox community, not as much, but even the modern Orthodox community, my guess is that your average person is like knows distance relationship to a quarter of the people in the synagogue or have extended family relations in the you know, black hat Orthodox community. Um, you're probably even like half of the community, like in most synagogues, their brothers and extended families and people, you know, know their family trees. And so in that extent, like an accepted outside. And then I even performed roles that were specific to me. And then it's like, well, you know, like driving or construction or uh, even being assistants to rabbis. And I did certain things that uh, in the Hasidic community, they didn't want themselves doing. 
And so that was my accepted outsider. So I was clearly an outsider that I was doing things that if I was an insider would not have been accepted. And it was only accepted because I was an outsider, but I was clearly part of the community as an outsider. And Detroit is not really that, uh, you know, big enough or, or distinction like that. And then, you know, in the modern Orthodox, um, you know, just like having a beard, wearing a black yarmulke, having uh, Orthodox, I, I, I didn't really fit in. So like, you know, to go to synagogue near me is, uh, you know, like I'm basically like a failed Balchuva, which, uh, you know, I don't know if you consider yourself like a failed convert. I mean, you say you're a successful convert, you became a Jew, but like a failed uh, Balchuva, like I never was able to keep the law good enough to keep, uh, you know, the halakha in a way that would been fully in accordance with Orthodox. And then, you know, God forbid, I'm still single and, uh, you know, don't have children in uh, the system. So I guess like a failed Balchuva is a little different than a failed convert, because if you're a failed convert, you're not really Jewish. So in that sense, uh, you know, I guess it'd be quite different. Yeah. So I can choose to focus on ways that I've failed, but I don't choose to focus there. I choose to focus on ways that I've succeeded and I choose to focus on ways that I feel integrated and, and part of the part of the dance. But I could, you know, if I wanted to, like many converts or many Balechuva can focus on where they failed to integrate or where they feel they've failed the, the standard. So I think it's it's largely a matter of where you focus. Uh, though also you have to, wherever you stand on this, it has to be socially reinforced. So I could claim to have successfully integrated, but unless that's reinforced on, on a regular basis by the community, like I would obviously be saying a lie that I would internally know is a lie and that would eat away at me and eventually I'd, I'd drop out. You, you can't live a lie. You can't live a lie that dramatically f for that long. Like if you believe that you're integrated, but your constant, you know, daily experience is that you're not, you know, your, your time living that lie is going to be in months at maximum. Any thoughts on what I was just talking about? Yeah, I've been saying that's where you say like where that's why I'm calling myself like the accepted outsider as opposed to you never really considering myself uh, an insider. I mean, I was obviously an insider in Brooklyn because I served rabbis. I knew a lot more about the community than most uh, you know people who were brought up in the community because I was specifically doing things for community leaders that uh, – you know, specifically because of my background, I was the one doing it for them, but they wouldn't have had people from their own background, uh, you know, so to say, if their own kid was like me, they would have been a bum, you know, God forbid. And I don't know in LA if it would have been like that, but because I was an outsider, I wasn't a bum. And I, I took it realistic and I would have had to marry somebody like me. But, uh, you know, once I started going to university, um, you know, there's a lot of dissonance, like in, in Metro Detroit, I you work with the Russian synagogue and I, I felt purpose. Like, you know, I put on tefillin and, uh, you know, was part of Kirov and also in the, the larger community where, where I was, uh, you know, helping with Kirov and, uh, you know, the downtown synagogue and then, you know, God forbid they took a turn to the left and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, God forbid a series of unfortunate events, uh, beyond my control. Some of the sociology is a little bit, uh, complicated. Um, and I had a friend in Israel, like God forbid, who you know, became like a, a strong Balchuva and then he left completely. And for a period of time, he used to sleep late 
And he, uh, I guess he said he stopped putting tefillin on. And, you know, so I was like, well, why don't you just like put it on for a few minutes? So he's like, well, if he doesn't put it on, people just assume that he prayed already. He's like, oh, you prayed already. He's like, but if he puts it on, someone might catch him. And then like, well, why aren't you going to Minion? So he just didn't put on tefillin at all because he thought it was easier to kind of like let people think he davened already than to catch him just putting on tefillin quickly and uh, not going to Minion. And, uh, you know, when you're in the community, there's a lot of expectations like, you know, like, well, you're not Orthodox. You failed to, uh, um, you know, keep that. And, I, you know, I think probably most modern Orthodox Jews have some sort of distance. Like probably a lot of people, you know, even use electronic split light switches. Uh, you know, like even in the Black Hat community, there's a lot of people who just never dive in Mincha or uh, you have certain leniencies. And uh, it's tough sociologically, but but I, I guess in that sense, like my friend said, like, you know, so showing up to synagogue, well, like, why haven't you been showing up? And like, I don't have good answers to these questions. So then it's easier to just like not show up, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, where are you holding? And uh, I don't have any good answers to these questions. You know, it's like, I'm going through a midlife crisis. And like, do you think talking to the rabbi or communal leaders is going to help? And like, well, not really. So at that point, it's easier to just not show up. Now, I'm concerned that I may have played a, a role in distancing you from the community. One, introducing you to, you know, a panoply of ideas that are ne not necessarily going to get you applauded in the organized Jewish community. And two, uh, bringing you into live streaming and then, you know, live streaming with people who, with frequently critical views of Jews. Uh, have I or has, has live streaming distanced you from organized Jewish life? No, I'd say live stream is probably what has kept me Jewish because uh, I had people to talk about Judaism with. So, you know, like I'm still extremely Jewish oriented. You know, I still do the law. I even have like my Ask the Rabbi streams, people that I met through your, uh, you know, starting with you that I talk about Judaism online. So even though I've been distanced from, I mean, not distanced because, you know, I still live peripherally within the Jewish community. Uh, but even though I, I haven't been actively participating, I still have the online, you know, like Jewish sphere that uh, came from you. I mean, maybe like dealing with counter Semites took a little bit of a toll, um, but I'm not sure. I, I think it was a series of failures, mostly with my work at the downtown synagogue that I had worked to make a minion and uh, you know, build up orthodoxy and then they voted to turn liberal. And uh, you know, so I think that was probably the biggest uh, detriment in my Judaism because I spent like five years trying to build up a minion and uh, you know, build up some sort of uh, Judaism in Detroit. And then through electoral process, they basically you know, went full to the left. So no, I don't think, I don't uh, put any blame on you. And I would, I would even say that, uh, like I said, that... Uh, you know, like it's these circles that uh, give me people to talk about Judaism. And I don't know about about you, but I think we've talked about this, that even within Jewish circles, you probably have a hard time finding people to talk about Judaism with. So it's actually online that, uh, you know, you find the community to uh, talk about Judaism with. Yeah, uh, interesting. So you've got a nice new haircut. Is this part of a trend or part of a new direction in your life you're you're looking much more you know socially acceptable much less uh, transgressive for the 
general public? No, I mean, it just before Passover, like, you know, God forbid, I still uh, burned my beard. So, you know, like, you know, this is just my normal before Passover before the, uh, you know, the 40, uh, the Shavuos period where you're preferably not supposed to, uh, you know, shave, I guess, uh, you know, there's a lot of hat to him, but, uh, um, I still like being Jewish. Like, so I'm back to coaching chess at the Detroit Institute of Arts. I still wear my yarmulke. Um, people ask me about Judaism. Um, and I like talking about Judaism. I like being a Jew. Uh, you know, I, everything on John Wolf, he's still, you know, calling me rabbi and, uh, you know, so I, I, I guess, you know, if you put me on some respect, like, okay, I'm failed Balchuva. I was not successful at becoming an Orthodox Jew. I studied in Orthodox schools. Um, and if I had to clarify, like, you know, like, God forbid, you know, people like, you don't represent, the, you know, you don't represent Judaism or something like, I would have to make clarify, clarifying statements or something like that. If someone, uh, you know, knew enough about Orthodoxy, to ask me like like you're not really a proper orthodox jew where i would have to give some sort of clarifying statement but this point i'm pretty comfortable doing that and uh you know i know a bunch of names so if people start throwing out names like you know like oh i know that person and uh you know even if it's a non-jew like you know it's like oh i'm just a half jew or something like that uh, i'm not sure if during your down points you also felt like that where you still kind of enjoy even if you were kind of in the ruts in your judaism that you still kind of like wearing yarmulke and presenting yourself as a Jew and talking about Judaism to uh, secular Jews or non-Jews. Uh, it's it's buried. So I, for, for many years, I didn't wear a yarmulke out and about uh, that much. And when I went back to Australia, these last two trips, uh, I wore one only about half the time. I was just kind of curious what the reaction would be um, compared to, you know, wearing a yarmulke, not wearing a yarmulke. Didn't didn't find that much of a, a difference, but uh, so I've someone had... came up to you and was like, you know, are you Jewish or, or you know, wanted to? Yeah, some people did. So when I wore a yarmulke, particularly in Brisbane, where there are very few Jews, I had uh, a Jew come up to me and start talking about uh, local Jewish community. And in in Sydney, yeah, some people would make some some inoffensive jokes, uh, but uh, um, there there have been plenty of Jews in the the Jewish area. North Head Road who've been beaten up, but that was 10, 15 years ago. So there haven't been any incidents of Jews getting beaten up in Sydney for about 10 years. I guess the final point is, I think I failed. I probably could have worked into like a Chabad or like Russian Bolshev or the modern Orthodox, but I'm kind of an anti-racist. And I think, you know, the Israel issue is such a big deal among or fighting anti-Semitism that I really couldn't bring on myself to like hate Arabs and, uh, you know, even kind of like liberal ideals that, uh, you probably made it difficult if I were married and like, I, I probably have to have my kids in modern Orthodox yeshivas and, and they probably wouldn't fit in. It'd probably be uh, difficult. And then also because my parents, uh, you know, I'm kind of, you know, the only Orthodox Jew, my, my, my uh, and uh, I don't have any extended family. It's, uh, you know, it's tough. Like, you know, so, you know, like the failure to get married, the fail failure to have kids, which is such a central part of Judaism, which is a communal organization. Um, 
you know, versus like, I'm, I'm, you know, like now I'm, uh, you know, in my forties, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my Judaism. I could even say most of the prayers in Hebrew. I know most of the laws. I know, uh, you know, most of the important names and people in the community. I've read, you know, thousands of books on the subject. I have a uh, you know, pretty popular Ask the Rabbi stream. So it's really just my failure to integrate within the Orthodox community. And it may have been kind of like, I, I kind of always knew that I wouldn't be able to do that. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure maybe you had higher hopes for your ability to integrate within the Orthodox community, or if you kind of saw that like you were never going to be able to really integrate within the Orthodox community. Well, I, I feel like I've integrated in the Orthodox community according to the way I normally integrate within communities. So I'm usually not a total company man or a total community man because I enjoy my freedom. So I deliberately give up some community to enhance my freedom. At the same time, I give up some freedom to enhance my community. So it's kind of a, a balancing act for me. I like having a show where I get to speak widely on many you know, controversial hot-button topics, and I would have much less freedom to do that if I were more integrated into the community. So I'm willing to sacrifice some integration into the community to preserve my freedom. Do you think about that tension between freedom and community, and how do you navigate it? Yeah, because I had basically given up everything for five years of my life to you know, fully be a Hasidic Jew, and then at some point it was actually the rabbis that were kind of like, like you're only a half Jew, you're never going to really be able to integrate, and then wanted me to do other things for them based on you know, kind of being the outsider that uh, somewhat made sense to me. And then I also saw um, most of the successful Balchubas I knew, it was together with their families, where their families started becoming more orthodox, and certainly, uh, like, you know, like going to Israel and... Uh, um, yeah, I remember I first went to Israel, my brother married a non-Jewish woman and, and like, that was, uh, uh, like a lot of the rabbis were like, you got to do everything possible to stop that from happening. And then after that happened, um, it also became a big difficulty. I think with, you know, like, I know certain Balchu people would point out like, oh, like that person, his, uh, your brother also, uh, you know, intermarried, but, uh, intermarriage is really a pretty big deal. So already being a product from intermarriage and having my siblings intermarried, um, maybe being a convert is is just different because you're you're considered like a single singular person. Uh, you know, joining within the people is like being born again. As as where you know, if you're a Balchuva, uh, you're expected to uh, try to get your family to become more religious. And part of your success in joining the Froom community is related to your success in making your family more Froom. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. That's uh, interesting. I, I don't on that that particular that particular challenge, but uh, I've got uh, adjacent thought. So I was I was having a lot of uh, very friendly conversations with this beautiful young woman and then I happened to mention that I leave audible books running all night because I don't want to be alone with my thoughts and she said oh we're not going to go there and then she basically stopped talking to me so if if I just let my thoughts go if I just ruminate I my thoughts will start to go in a tendency towards what I don't have where I've failed in life you know what I'm missing where I'm not getting it done 
and I don't like that. So I like to have a have a busy life, and you know get things you know accomplished from the getting up in the morning, taking a cold shower, you know saying my prayers, doing my meditation, etc. Like building a a ladder of accomplishment throughout the day. So I feel I feel good. I, I feel happy, and then I naturally think about you know, the things that I do have. And so I'm happy and grateful because I'm primarily thinking about things that I do have. But it's very easy for me to start sliding down and thinking about things that I don't have in my life and things where I'm failing in my life compared to my my peers. So do you struggle with, with this? I mean, possibly. I, I keep myself busy with ideas. Like I, I you're probably the basis of our friendship was our you just love of learning and you know not just Torah but all things so you know like I study constantly I'm reading and uh, I have so many ideas I'm thinking about I'm trying to write I haven't given up on life at all um and you know I haven't even given up on Judaism to some extent I actually think I'm more valuable to the Jewish community in a lot of ways as a half Jew or you know even to, as as a non-Jew and so you know, like it hurts to be old and single it hurts to, uh, you know, kind of feel like, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll be rejected, but just, uh, you know, not being part of it to be uh, an outsider to some extent, uh, you know, that's, uh, but uh, um, I don't need to uh, listen, keep things on at night. You know, like I usually study till I get tired. A lot of nights I go straight to upstairs to uh, to sleep and fall straight, straight asleep. Sometimes I'll read in bed for a little bit, so I don't need uh, any audio. I know a lot of uh, experts on sleep and things say that you should, uh, um, you know, I have a house. I don't know if you're just in one room or something, but you shouldn't have electronic devices in your uh, your bedroom or shouldn't fall asleep to the TV or with uh, electric gadgets. So I've been going with that a few years. So uh, you know, might, you know, according to the experts on sleep, that that's uh a bad thing um and i don't think i have any psychological issue like that where I, i've kind of accepted my lot i still hope to succeed and you know get married and build up a family and uh you know, may, maybe you have a larger dissonance there where i just kind of look at myself as an outsider where you have uh not an outsider like i mean i said the accepted outsider uh but uh you know i don't have the dissonance where where you know i say i'm a failed balchuva I'm not sure, you know, I maybe made some bad decisions or it was just too difficult for me and I wasn't uh, able to do it. And I still hope that there's something there for me and some, you know, I still try to be useful as a Jew and uh, I believe in God, try to be a good person and, uh, you know, various things and still have hope to the future. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, maybe five, 10 years from now, I'll, uh, you know, lose hope or, or if you think that's related, like you, you'd fall into depression if, uh, if you didn't have, uh, you know, like at late at night, like uh, you can't just read a book or you'd fall into the depression. Well, it's not so much a depression. It's just start going down a path I, d I don't want to go down. I don't want to spend a great deal of time thinking about things that I don't have. And so uh, I'm particularly prone to that when I put my head down on the pillow at night because I'm busy all day. Like I'm doing things all day. So this is the first free time really for, for my mind to start going. And my mind naturally goes towards thinking about things that I don't have rather than celebrating things that I do have. So does your mind... like a wife and kids, or are you saying like everything that you 
like you know money fame or you're specifically you know like the wife and kids well wife and kids would be you know one thing that that i'm lacking you know other other things that i'm lacking yeah i you know i can easily start spending time thinking about that and i'd rather interrupt that but uh so you naturally don't spend much time thinking about the things that you don't have you naturally spend most of your time celebrating what you do have yeah i don't celebrate but yeah i'm, I'm pretty thankful to god and uh you know i guess like you know god forbid if uh you know it's late at night and, and you say like uh you know god forbid the, the your struggle of uh spilling seed or something like that where late at night you're gonna you know most likely to focus on like you know god forbid i'm single or or it uh you know the pain and you maybe if you had children that you you'd have to uh you'll get up in the morning because like relatively uh i have responsibilities but you know if i sleep later there's nothing that uh, forces me to get up uh you, you know i could sleep till 10 or so i rarely sleep past nine but if i did you know like it, it wouldn't make a difference like i don't have kids that necessitate me getting up early um you know obviously i get more money more fame more success but uh i'm pretty driven i think the main thing that i've that i you know just loneliness or you know the feeling of failure that uh i, I couldn't uh find a woman to build up a family i don't necessarily have uh, a large list of uh you know grievances that you know things i didn't accomplish besides for that so I haven't spoken to you in about three months. So what have you been doing the last few months? I've been doing a lot of studying and like I've really been getting into science and the philosophy of science. And uh, yeah, I did I did some streams and, and it's, it's a little bit interesting because the philosophy of science is not a well popularized or known subject. There's only a few university departments across the country that even study the philosophy of science and there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings of people that uh, you know the word like science or truth or knowledge uh you know so i have a long list of uh books i've been reading on the subject and uh yeah i've been studying and reading other things but uh i would say in terms of my productivity in academically studying i might be the most productive i've ever been in my whole life like i probably spend like 10 hours a day studying and uh, have you had any favorite live streams that you've either hosted or that you've participated in in the last few months? Are you still doing streams with Charles Moskowitz? No, I haven't streamed with him since uh, um, December. And like, I, I mean, he might still be around or streaming, but he changed times. And I, th I thought it wasn't really going anywhere, so I didn't push to contact him and he didn't contact me. So, uh, you know, I'm unsure and, uh, you, you said the viewership wasn't really going up and I don't think he was really listening to me and, and it just seemed kind of repetitive where he wanted to repeat his talking points, but, uh, it wasn't even getting much of a viewership and like, I wasn't having any positive networking, uh, you know, basically not almost no one that, uh, used to watch the content was still watching. And like no one was contacting me talking about, uh, you know, how they saw me on Charles Moskowitz. I wasn't able to uh, book people for his show. So, uh, you know, it's possible we'll talk again. But, uh, uh, you know, Church of Entropy, it took a few weeks off. I also, you know, I'm not sure the long-term future. We might continue with that. But uh, um, I'm a pretty 
goal progress oriented person. I don't like talking just to talk that much. So uh, I had hoped to go to the science of consciousness conference this year in Italy. And I just couldn't pull myself together. I, I thought about, I'd looked into doing it, but it would have cost like $4,000 and passport and everything. And uh, I didn't pull myself together to go. I mean, it's not till the end of May, but I would have had to book uh, the ticket a few, uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, I was a little disappointed in the direction of uh, Week in Review. Like I wanted to move towards trying to publish papers and uh, you, you networking. And it hasn't been moving that direction. So we'll see that that might also fall apart. But I'll discuss that with uh, Jennifer after okay. Passover. Okay. Do do you have a uh, favorite Jewish holiday, or are they all pretty much the same for you? Um, I guess I used to like. I liked all of them. You know, like these days, I, I even celebrating alone. I like I, I kind of like saying the prayers. I like. Uh, you know, I mean, sukkah was always fun. And when you're part of like in Brooklyn or the big community, um, but even in some respect in the larger community, they're all, you know, everyone gathers and there's tishes and singing and prayers and uh, big feasts. So I'm not a favorite kind of guy. I'm not sure if you're a favorite kind of guy, but generally I'm not a, you know, like a top five kind of person. Like I'm equanimical to, uh, you know, all things. Okay. I guess I like Sukkot where we, where we dwell in, in booths for about eight days. That's one of my favorite. There's an interesting Twitter conversation between Richard Spencer and Nathan Kofner. So Richard Spencer tweets, perhaps a good first step in combating anti-Semitism would be to de-emphasize a holiday, meaning Passover, that celebrates God's destruction of the firstborn of every non-Israelite, forcing an exasperated Pharaoh to expel Israel from Egypt. So here's my reaction to this. Uh, Passover is not primarily about God's destruction of the firstborn of every non-Israelite. In fact, that doesn't happen in the story. It's just the, the firstborn of Egypt, the, the, the nation that is enslaving the Jewish people. And there's nothing in the story that says an exasperated Pharaoh expels Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt. And I don't think uh, de-emphasizing Passover is going to make any serious indentation in anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, as I understand it, is primarily a reaction to very real conflicts of interest between groups, in this case, between Jewish and, and non-Jewish groups. But let me reread this Richard Spencer tweet to you and get your reaction. So Richard tweets, perhaps a good first step in combating anti-Semitism would be to de-emphasize a holiday, meaning Passover, that celebrates God's destruction of the firstborn of every non-Israelite, forcing an exasperated Pharaoh to expel Israel from Egypt. Do you have any reaction to this uh, tweet by Spencer? Yeah, it was interesting because you, you, I did Passover with my family and my mother had these old reform Haggadah, Haggadahs and there wasn't enough for everybody. So I was using like a more direct translated one. And so I noticed that, uh, uh, you know, specifically after uh, you know, the cup of Elijah and you open the door and then there's this Hebrew parish, Shvach Hamaska, uh, pour out your wrath upon the nations. And I saw that wasn't in the Reform Haggadah. And I've also been studying a lot of Immanuel Kant, you know, because he's kind of like the father of the philosophy of science. Um, you even have this title, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. If you wanted to talk about them, I've been studying a lot of them. They're also 
somewhat like the fathers of uh, modern philosophy of science. Uh, but you know, so the reform had agreed with Richard Spencer and had uh, taken that stuff out of the Haggadah. And, you know, so just my family using the reform Haggadah had largely extracted any of these uh, ideas from the Haggadah. And, uh, you know, a lot of what's going on in Israel, a lot of, uh, um, you know, like in Metro Detroit, there was a big issue with this Palestinian woman and, you know, support of Israel. And yeah, I don't know if you have negative feelings towards the reform uh, but it's you know it's interesting that uh, the reform did feel like that they did change the services and uh, did change and remove all of that stuff although reform has kind of died out in uh, you know intermarriage like uh, duvet I'm a product of intermarriage and uh, secularism so I'm not sure and we've talked about this in the past before uh, but uh, your your attitudes about reform or thinking about 150 200 years ago with the emancipation of Jews in Germany. Uh, you know, like Immanuel Kant, where he criticized the Jews like Richard Spencer is today. And in response, like, uh, you know, the reform did, in fact, remove that stuff. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to make uh, any difference with uh, anti-Semitism. Let me reread, read more from this uh, Twitter thread here between Richard Spencer. I mean, in a belief thing to say, like, we don't actually believe that. And, uh, and, and we don't say it to say, well, OK, our ancestors said this stuff. It's part of our religion. But like, no, I don't believe that. And I'm not going to say this mantra just because my ancestors said the mantra. And, you know, say like you as an Orthodox convert, that's not within your purview to to say that. But, uh, you know, say like as a Jew to say, well, yeah, this is my ancestor's tradition, but I think it's wrong. And, uh, you know, I don't think God cares whether I keep on repeating this stuff and to have adapted that. Uh, but you know, then like you're you're correct about the failure of reform. Reform's dying out, and uh, you know I'm the product of that change through intermarriage. Yeah, I don't have any strong generic reaction to reform Judaism. It'd have to go like uh, uh, issue by issue. But let me read okay. on. Go ahead. Uh, really, to Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer claims, I mean, says that he went to a school that was like 10% Jewish, and presumably those 10% Jewish were probably reform or secularized and those would have been the people that assimilated in the sense American Judaism is based off the assimilation of the Jews the in the assimilation of the Jews was based off of the fact that collectively a large segment of the Jews got together we're still Jewish but we absolutely do not believe that stuff we do not plan on going back to Israel we do not believe in rebuilding the temple we don't believe in this Jew Gentile uh, you know distinction like is in our text and like all the Adam Green type stuff. And that was what abled uh, Jews to integrate and assimilate across America. And, uh, you know, that assimilation is not really happening. You have Orthodox Jews or so, you know, Zionism or various things, but that, like, uh, you know, the, the Richard Spencer's, uh, you know, Episcopalian or whatever school that was 10% Jewish, that necessitated, uh, uh, you know, what he said that the Jews actively renounce that okay let's have a look at more of this thread nathan kofnis responds the jews were being held by the egyptians as slaves the holiday celebrates their liberation richard responds egypt along with other books condones exodus along with other books condones slavery but israel celebrate or accept a vengeful god destroying every firstborn israelite on behalf of the liberation of the slaves the israelites held after leaving Egypt. So this idea, let's tackle this, Exodus condones slavery. 
I think Exodus and the Torah recognize that slavery is a universal phenomenon and ex accepts that reality, but it does put in place a mechanism that uh, makes slavery increasingly difficult to carry on so that uh, slavery had basically died out among Jews 2,000 years ago. So slavery died out in America after 1865, died out in England in the 19th century. So for most countries that I'm thinking of right now, you had slavery right up to the 19th, even 20th century. Hmong Jews that pretty much died out 2,000 years ago, in large part because of legal mechanisms that the Torah puts in place that makes owning slaves increasingly onerous. Is there anything you want to say about that, David? Yeah, I think slavery in the Bible versus these you know, things in the Haggadah, you know, if it's saying like, why do we say these things? Um, I mean, it's really a question on, you know, like Adam Green and Richard Spencer saying, well, what does your religion stand for? And I've read your books and this is clearly what it stands for. This is what it said. I picked up your Haggadah. And I said, you know, pour out your wrath upon the nations and, uh, you know, the downfall of the enemies who uh, fought against us. And, uh, you know, like Adam Green and his constant, you know, like uh, self-proclaimed prophecy in every generation, they rise up to destroy us. And uh, you're saying like, well, you know, like Adam, you're right. That is what our religion says. Um, like you read our books, you've quoted our rabbis, and that is what we believe. Uh, I don't want to say believe, but that is historically the, like what the sages said, what our texts say. And they say, well, do we really believe this stuff? And then you look at the mess in Israel right now with the, the coalition and the backlash against the Orthodox gaining power and uh, like the Supreme Court, where, where most Israelis are absolutely uh, like this is not what we believe. Like this is what our ancestors and it's related to the to the reform and where you know, like. Can you just say like it's not true, or or some level like no like this is uh, historically what our ancestors, as Jews, said, but it's it's not accurate. We don't believe this stuff anymore, and then say well why do we do these traditions? Why do we say it? It could be some level of memory, and uh, I mean it's tough to say. Like if you think like Nathan Kaufman, I watched your you know this thing with uh, Lipton Matthews who I'd interviewed and mentioned to you a few few times. Interesting character. And you think here, well, like, you know, here you have, uh, um, you know, the main thing that Nathan Kaufness is known for is standing up for the Jews and fighting anti-Semitism, even though he's, uh, you know, basically a secular Jew who married, uh, you know, a non-Jew and, uh, you know, whatever the case is. But, you know, the main thing he's known for is standing up for anti-Semitism. And he probably is a large critic of Judaism, but, you know, the purpose of, you're know, saying, like, these Orthodox Jews, Judy, we have a right to believe this stuff. And, uh, I mean, that was kind of my take in, you, you know, our talking with Adam Green, like, well, yeah, it is kind of what we believe. That is what our sages teaches, but you have to judge a person based on our actions, and you can't assume that Jews are going to be dishonest or do anything wrong just because this is our uh, belief system. And, uh, Okay, let me jump in. Yeah, let me let me jump in. So, Halakhalishan gives the full context for that uh, quote. It is pour out thy wrath upon the nations that know you not, because they have eaten Jacob and instead Israel. So it's talking about nations that have acted in a wicked fashion. It doesn't mean all nations. And it would be really weird 
responding to Richard Spencer to have any in-group celebrating the massive death and destruction of itself on behalf of an out-group. So I would expect all in-groups to put themselves first. So why would any in-group celebrate you know, a vengeful God destroying every firstborn of their in-group on behalf of the liberation of out-groups? That's just not going to happen. Joseph responds, has the story of Passover ever been an actual reason for anti-Semitism, though? My understanding is that both Christians and Muslims, whose Jews generally live around, view the Jews in Egypt as the good guys. Uh, correct. So let me find more responses here. Nathan Kaufman says, according to tradition, 80% of Jews were killed by God in the plague of darkness because they were not religious enough. And also according to the tradition, only, yeah, only 20% of the Jews left Egypt, that 80% stayed behind and were killed. Israel does accept a vengeful God who often targets Jews. The moral framework of the Bible isn't that slavery is good or bad. That's not the right way to interpret the story. And Richard Spencer says, yes, I agree. The message of the Pentateuch is not peace, human rights, or freeing the slaves. It is subservience to God or else. So why are you justifying the Passover celebration on the notion of freeing the Israelite slaves? Well, there's not one message of the Pentateuch. Uh, just talking about the message of the Pentateuch is uh, subservience to God. I don't think that's remotely accurate. There are many different messages in the Pentateuch. Nathan Kaufman's response, the holiday celebrates the liberation of the Israelites, not the killing of the Egyptian firstborn. Within the moral framework of the Bible, the liberation is good because it allows Jews to become slaves. That's the word used in Hebrew to God. And Richard Spencer says, Passover means just that, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. Okay, so I've been to many Passover seders. I have not detected, you know, dramatic levels of like anti-Egyptian sentiment in Passover seders. Like, uh, wrath at non-Jews or wrath at uh, Egyptians doesn't doesn't seem to have been inculcated at the Passover seders I've been to. Any thoughts on any of this, Duvin? Well, that's what I said. Like, can you judge Jews based off of... I mean, it's the Kevin McDonald, the concept of the group strategy. And if you're going to say, well, there is a Jewish group strategy and it's related to our religion and then this is what our religion says versus some sort of collective action of the Jews. So yeah, I don't think, you know, m m most Jews are not necessarily like vengeful or, or taking this stuff uh, um, to a certain level, but uh, I mean, at the same time, uh, Richard Spencer and Adam Green's criticisms almost mirror Israeli criticisms of Karedim. And uh, like, uh, you know, like in Israel, like you're supposed to serve in the army and uh you know the religious exemption in in uh all, all these various uh issues where israel might become a religious state and uh you know, that, that's why they're coming to uh civil war i mean i don't know if we've talked about this in the past but uh you know certainly the academic criticisms of judaism are extremely popular among israelis and uh, they're the same questions when I went to yeshiva, you know, or Samaic, and I first started asking, you know, like slavery, do we really believe this stuff? You know, if the Bible's true, then this is what it says. And uh, so I don't know how, if you separate like a belief system from a strategy to, uh, you know, the overall kind of way Jews act and you say, well, is it possible that we could believe this, but not act upon it? And uh, you know, say, well, 
that was largely my defense to Adam Green. Like, so, okay, this is what we believe. So what? Judge us on our actions, not our beliefs. Okay, uh, talking about uh, Thomas Hobbes versus John Locke, they have two very different opinions on the state of nature. So from a Hobbesian perspective, life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that's why we need a sovereign, a king, a, a government with total power. From a John Locke perspective, life in state of nature is generally harmonious with people trading with one another. So who do you think is more accurate about the state of nature outside of society? Uh, Thomas Hobbes, with his depiction of life being solitary, poor, nasty, British, and short, or John Locke, where he portrays people you know, living in harmony and trading with each other? In that sense, I'm probably more like a Hobbesian and think that the essential nature of man is abortion you know, needs to be refined and checked. Although on the, 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 what I've been covering is the origins of the scientific method. And so, you know, John Locke was a contemporary of Newton and uh, together with Francis Bacon is considered one of the developers of empiricism and the scientific method as where Hobbes was rejected membership of the Royal Society of Science Although Hobbes, you know, it's kind of this interesting, like, like you also kind of like, you know, studies and sciences and, and the connection to truth and the relationship to empiricism and the scientific method. And Hobbes, although falls short in the scientific method, also begins this approach towards using the scientific method towards politics. And you know, it also has a big play in Judaism and the rise of reform in the question of truth, where truth is received, where uh, you know, we know truth from our sages and our ancestors in scripture, as opposed to a method of empiricism and uh, um, science. So you know, I, I, think I, I would be taking quite a few things from both of them that uh, you know, they got a, both a lot right and a lot wrong. Okay, uh, David, I'm gonna move on for today. Any, any final words? Yeah, happy Passover. You know, nice talking with you. And I said, uh, um, yeah, I'm trying to chart a path forward. And in, in uh, you know, Judaism still is probably the main central part of my life. Uh, although, you know, like you for years, like you know, it's like I thought maybe I was part of something that w was stronger to my identity. Um, and I, I don't have any ill will towards uh, um, you know what you did. I sought you out. Like I found you on the internet, and uh, you know, ended up in your chat and uh you know, took it upon myself and uh, you know largely i think you created some of these internet circles to uh, speak about these things and you know it's unfortunately they didn't uh pick up and you know even like half glitzy and i see him in the chat and like he's always messaging me but one of the main you know it's always like kind of like fighting anti-semitism and I, I like that's not what i wanted to do i just kind of like like you i just like talking about people and speaking about these things so uh yeah, I appreciate you creating some of these circles and, uh, you know, keeping, uh, you know, Judaism alive in that sense. So uh, happy Passover, Kaksimek, uh, you know, blessings all for good things. Thanks, uh, David. Great to talk to you. Let me tell you about this book I've been reading, which inspired me to live stream today. It's a biography of Thomas Hobbes, and he was a great believer in human equality in the state of nature. And this is the basis for his thinking. No matter how stupid and weak a person may be, he still has enough wit and strength to kill another person, no matter how smart and strong. So his basis for 
looking at people as basically equal in a state of nature is that no matter how relatively strong or smart someone is, they still have the ability to kill another person, no matter how smart or strong that person is, because even smart and strong people have to, have to sleep. So Hobbes said, if we consider with how great a facility he that is weaker in strength or in wit may utterly destroy the power of the stronger, since there needs but little force to the taking away of a man's life, we may conclude that men considered in mere nature ought to admit amongst themselves equality. <laughs> I think what an amazing way to come to a foundation of uh, believing in human equality, and that is even stupid people can kill smart, capable <laughs> people. That's, that's the basis for Hobbes's view on human equality. So he thinks that even the strongest, the most intelligent person has to sleep. So when he does, even a stupid person can sneak up on such a strong, smart person and bash his brains out. So this is the nature red in tooth and claw argument. And this natural equality, our natural susceptibility, our natural vulnerability to being killed by people who don't like us contributes to universal warfare. And so state of nature equals, from a Thomas Hobbes' perspective, equal vulnerability, which equals equal lethality. Right, is very dangerous in the state of nature. Now, Hobbes emphasizes this idea of human equality in the state of nature for primarily rhetorical reasons. He wants the state of nature to be an unpleasant place, right? And he recognizes that most of his audience in the 17th century would have thought of human equality as socially and morally disastrous and wrong. So a big difference from now. Human equality is now widely accepted as the right thing because we live in the aftermath of nationalism. Right, An accompaniment to nationalism is a belief in equality. If your nation is your primary source of identity, right, then you're all components of that nation, and there is some element of equality in that you're all part of the, the same extended family. So in all of Hobbes's books, the causes for war are roughly the same, competition for the same thing diffidence meaning distrust towards one's fellow man and the desire for glory so human desires are infinite natural resources and human resources are limited different groups have different interests and different gifts ago when you have a dramatic enough conflict of interests between groups you get killing and war so I also find this interesting. Thomas Hobbes has the absolute unswerving position is that there is no private property in the state of nature, which is very different from John Locke's view. So John Locke's view is the state of nature is largely a harmonious place where people have their own private property and they can freely trade with other people. But from Thomas Hobbes' perspective, because there's no sovereign and no legal system, there is effectively no private property in the state of nature. So property as we now know it originates within the civil state and therefore property ultimately belongs to the sovereign so from a Hobbesian perspective there is no point to protesting against tax rates against government regulations against lockdown orders against vaccine mandates because whatever rights we enjoy they are the gifts of the sovereign and so only with a sovereign only with a civil state can we have any rights. So this is very different from the modern late 20th century view on human rights as some kind of you know, universal 
thing that uh, anyone you know should be entitled to human rights. The traditional perspective prior to the 1970s is that human rights are solely what the nation state can afford its citizens. So one sign of sovereignty, according to Thomas Hobbes, is the status of being above the law. So from a Hobbesian perspective, the sovereign is above the law. So if you see politicians acting above the law and getting away with it, that means they are sovereign, right? So Carl Schmitt says, sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. So this is an adumbration, a development on the thought of Thomas Hobbes. I didn't realize how closely Carl Schmitt drew upon Thomas Hobbes. So the sovereign is he who is above the law. And the practical consequence of Thomas Hobbes' position is that Englishmen have no right to complain about any of the king's taxes or regulations. People are sadly mistaken and contribute to rebellion when they are commanded to contribute their persons or money to the public service and think they are not bound to contribute their goods and persons, not more than any man shall of himself think fit. So the United States was formed much more in the image of John Locke than in the ideology of Thomas Hobbes. So from a Lockean perspective that people would rally against the government and say, hey, regulations are too intrusive, taxes are too much, the, the government is taking too much from us. All right, that's a very Lockean perspective, that individuals are primarily you know, born with certain inalienable rights, and the whole purpose of government is to enforce those rights. That's not a Hobbesian perspective. Right? Hobbes says people have no right to rebel against the sovereign unless their own life is at stake. So Hobbes takes it for granted that if your life is at stake, right, any means that you need to take to preserve your life is legitimate, even if it means you know, opposing or even killing the sovereign. So you would expect people to go to any ends to preserve their life. But if your life is not at stake, you are bound to contribute your money, your goods, your, your service, right, to whatever the sovereign wants, because without a sovereign, without a civil state, right, you have no rights. So it's not a matter of just contributing in taxes or in service what you think is right. So here's a comparison of the two philosophers. Oh, hey there. It's education time. Sorry, getting a little psyched up with some Mastodon. Going to talk to you today about two very important early modern European philosophers, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Now, this one goes out to at one Republican 79 who asked uh, on Twitter, hello, I was wondering if I could request a video on Thomas Hobbes versus John Locke. My test is coming up at the end of this week. All right, so there you have it. So Hobbes and Locke, you've probably already heard about the divine right of kings. If you haven't, check out my video lecture on that. But you've likely been exposed to Jacques Bossuet, however you say that, uh, it's French, and he was a proponent of divine right absolutism. Now, this isn't going to be about Bossuet, okay? This is going to be about something different. Uh, both Hobbes and Locke reject the idea of divine right, and Hobbes is going to advocate for absolutism like Bossuet does, but it's going to be a philosophical absolutism, where John Locke is going to advocate for constitutional government, a limited government, and he is going to use both philosophical and biblical justifications for his argument for constitutional 
nationalism. So Hobbes and Locke are both going to give us two versions of a social contract. Now keep in mind that Rousseau wrote a book called The Social Contract, but he's not the first philosopher to address this subject. What the social contract essentially is, it covers two things. First of all, what is the origin of government? How did people decide to have government? And second, how much authority should the state have over the individual? And Hobbes and Locke are going to sort of agree on the first part, but they're going to disagree on the second part. Let's start off with Thomas Hobbes, who wrote a book called Leviathan in 1651. Remember that, Leviathan, um, same as Mastodon's second album, which I'm kind of introducing you to little by little in this uh, lecture. And in Leviathan, Hobbes is defending philosophical absolutism, the idea that absolute government is not best because it's mandated by God, it's best because, well, because it's best. Let Hobbes explain to you why. Now, what is a Leviathan? A Leviathan is a sea monster mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And it's mentioned in detail, described in very much detail in the book of Job specifically in Job 41. Now, let me go ahead and read a little bit to you from Job 41 with a little bit of Mastodon theme music, uh, if you don't mind. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? The answer to all those questions is unequivocally no. The Leviathan is not going to be caught with a hook, and he's not going to beg you for things, and he's not going to make requests. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? No, don't try that. I wouldn't recommend it. Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. You may try to cross the Leviathan, but you will learn your lesson. And if you battle with that Leviathan one time, you will not do it again. Now, Hobbes is writing about this Leviathan because this is the sort of ruler that he would like to see, the sort of ruler that he thinks is necessary in order to keep us from destroying each other. Hobbes' view of the world before government. So the, the more pessimistic your view of human nature, the more sympathetic you're going to be to a central state that's a leviathan. Now, on the other hand, you might say, well, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Therefore, we need to have separation of powers. But uh, so that would be that would be a libertarian critique and a classical liberal critique of Thomas Hobbes, but a traditionalist who has a very skeptical view of human nature recognizes the need for a central government that is as powerful as the Leviathan. Now, if you have a more positive view or a less negative view of human nature, then you'll tend in a more libertarian direction. But if you have a traditional view of human nature, then you're going to be much more open to the Hobbesian vision of a need for a Leviathan. Was a state of nature, which Hobbes refers to specifically as a state of war, a war of all against all. Those of you who have trouble with the English language and would like to see it translated into Latin, here it is. Bellum, ominum, contra, omnis. A war of all against all. But if you could write this on your AP Euro FRQ or something like that, that would really make an impression. Bellum, ominum, contra, ominous. 
And Hobbes believed that before government, life in the state of nature, in the state of war, all against all, that life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So if you're into Carl Schmitt, all right, Carl Schmitt's thought is an extrapolation upon Thomas Hobbes. So if you love Carl Schmitt, you're going to love Thomas Hobbes, right? Schmitt basically devoted his life to writing commentaries on the thought of Thomas Hobbes and extending the thought of Thomas Hobbes. So, for example, uh, Hobbes held that the sovereign is he who is above the law, and Schmitt just refined that to the sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. The state of exception is above the law, right? When you're in a state of exception, the laws no longer apply. So you may be familiar with some of the refugees from the Middle East who moved to Europe and did heinous sex crimes. And when, you know, busted, arrested by the police, you know, brought to court, why did you commit this heinous sex crime? They claimed a Schmittian defense. They said they were in an erotic state of exception. And so for, for them, the normal rules could no longer apply. So who is this guy? This guy is Thomas Ritchie. And this lecture is designed for AP European history students. So I don't know anything about Thomas Ritchie, but uh, I think he does a pretty good job here. Five things. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Richie, what's that pony doing up there? Well, this was my pony before a janitor erased it at the end of last year. Rest in peace, my pony. But this actually comes from an acronym that my students came up with. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, whatever. Super ponies need back scratches. Super ponies. That's a super pony right there. So super ponies need back scratches. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So honestly, the absence of an invincible. So the idea absolute. here is that we need a ruler who is strong enough that he is beyond challenge, that people think I could not possibly mess with that guy. Because that is the only thing that keeps us from tearing each other apart. That right. So the more you believe that basic human nature is dangerous, that without a strong sovereign we're gonna tear each other apart, then the more open you're going to be towards the doctrine of a powerful state. This Leviathan, who is so large, you can see him looming large over everything, larger than the city, and you see that his garments, his chain mail is made of people, and he's so big as to be beyond challenge, and that will make us behave ourselves when we otherwise would not, and it will keep us from destroying one another. And this comes down to Hobbes' view of human nature, which really isn't that far away from John Calvin's, who said that uh, man is totally depraved and incapable of really doing any good unless his heart is quickened by the Holy Spirit. And yes, that's kind of the inspiration for the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. These two philosophers, one religious, one political, that tend to think like each other. When it right, so I talked about those two football players in high school who were really mean until they were transformed by a personal experience of Jesus Christ, and then they became you know, the most lovely men you could imagine. Comes to human nature. They have a very pessimistic view of who we are. Uh, then again, we might say, oh, well, yeah, I, I trust people. I generally think that people are good, kind of in the vein of the Italian Renaissance humanist. But Hobbes asked, if you think so much of people and you trust your fellow man so much, why do you lock your door? And everybody says, ooh, yeah, think about it. How about...
Well, guess what? In the San Fernando Valley, all right, in Los Angeles, into the 1960s, people didn't lock their doors or lock their cars. And I was just in Tanham Sands. Generally speaking, people don't bother to lock their doors or lock their cars there either. So there are plenty of places where people don't lock their doors and lock their cars. Give me your social security number. Just send me an email, tr at tomrigi.net. Tweet it to me, at Tom Ritchie. Uh, you know, let the whole world see it. I mean, what do you have to fear by giving out your private information? Wait, what? You, you don't trust me? Good call. Because, really, if it weren't for the law and all of that stuff, I would be the first person to slit your throat and drink your blood for breakfast. Actually, I wouldn't drink your blood because that would make me a vampire. And if I were a vampire, I would not be able to drink this. But anyway, yeah, humans can be pretty cruel at times. Now, keep in mind that Hobbes is specifically writing... So if you guys watch Yellow Jackets, I, I, I saw it was so much acclaimed by the, the news media. I, I tried watching it. It's just too dark for me. It's just too painful to watch Yellow Jackets. Like, there's just too much cannibalism apparently going on. I, I gave up on Yellow Jackets maybe about the third episode, but I didn't enjoy any of what I saw. I'm not into vampires and cannibalism. Against the backdrop of the English Civil War, Hobbes saw absolute government in England break down and lead to this long civil war. Ricardo says, but Luke, in 1960, almost everyone was a Christian European. Well, in, in Japan, there's not a, a great deal of a need to lock your doors or lock your cars either, and very few people there are Christian European, so it's not a uniquely Christian European thing. But yeah... In white topias in the United States, there are much lower levels of crime compared to more diverse areas. At the end of which the king is beheaded, we see the end of civil government as we know it. And so Hobbes didn't really see any evidence that people can live together without... And Ricardo says, John Calvin validated decline of Christianity leads to doors needing to be locked. But... Uh, I would suspect that many cars and many homes in Northern Europe were not locked until the massive importation of refugees from the Middle East. So Northern Europe was the first place on Earth in the history of Earth that uh, became overwhelmingly secular. Right? Sweden, Norway, Finland. Right? These are the first secular societies in human history and they had very low crime rates until they imported a bunch of people who were frequently fervent God believers from the Middle East, and then their crime rates went up. But from the 1960s into the 1990s, I s would suspect most uh, Scandinavians didn't put a great deal of emphasis on locking doors, even though they were secular and godless. Some sort of absolute authority binding them down. So remember that Hobbes doesn't see this as... God wills absolute government, but just that absolute government is the only way that we will survive without. So a Jewish or, or Christian critique of this type of thinking is that man will ultimately either be accountable to an all-powerful government or to an all-powerful God. But if people take their religion seriously and hold themselves morally accountable to an all-powerful God, then we will have less of a need for an all-powerful government. But uh, I'm thinking about the Japanese who overwhelmingly do not believe in God and yet, you know, incredibly law abiding, you know, more law abiding than any Christian or Jewish society of which I'm aware. Out destroying each other. 
Bob's philosophy was shaped directly by his experiences in the English Civil War, 1642 to 1651. Okay, now let's talk for a bit about John Locke's philosophical constitutionalism. Constitutionalism, as we've already talked about in another lecture, is the limitation of government by law. And constitutionalism is what eventually won out in England, and John Locke was its biggest advocate. He outlined his constitutionalist philosophy in his two... And Ricardo says Allah isn't God. Well, I think there are ways that the Islamic conception of God is similar to the Christian and Jewish conceptions, and there are probably ways that it's different, just like there are ways that the Christian conception of God, right, the triune Godhead, Godhead right, the, the Trinity, very distinct from the Jewish conception. For, from a Jewish perspective, the Christian perspective on God is pure idolatry. Now, Jews won't normally say this aloud, because it's not conducive to, you know, harmonious living with uh, Christians. But that would be a knee-jerk uh, Jewish response to the, you know, claims of Christianity. It's like, oh, this is, this is idolatry. So Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all have differing conceptions of God. At the same time, all three are generally uh, considered to be monotheistic religions. So... A, a Jewish response, another Jewish response is Christians believe that they are monotheists, so you know, why should we bother them? treatises of government published in 1689 remember that title great frq fodder and he is writing in defense of constitutionalism and in this John Locke is talking about natural rights which he believed that God gave to Adam in the book of Genesis. So keep in mind that Locke is using a biblical justification for his argument in addition to logic. And so he believed that God gave Adam natural rights and thus gave these natural rights to every human being. These natural rights are life, liberty, and property. Now remember, pursuit of happiness, this is Jefferson trying to change the wording around a little bit so that he doesn't get uh, caught on turnitin.com or whatever. Uh, so he's only partially plagiarizing Locke. But... These natural rights are given to human beings, but it's very difficult for us to defend them in the state of nature. I can say all I want that I've got a right to be alive, I've got a right to be free, I've got a right to the fruits of my labor, but in the state of nature, somebody can just come take that away from me. So people get involved in a social contract in order to preserve what they can of their life, liberty, and property. And it's the government's job to protect these natural rights. Uh, the whole point of government is so that we can enjoy these things to a greater extent than we would if we didn't have government. So this government can be limited by law. And furthermore, if this government is not preserving the lives, the liberties, the properties of their citizens, then the citizens have a right of revolution. They have a right to overthrow the government. This is why Jefferson is making so much use of Locke in the Declaration of Independence. This is all about Locke's philosophy, that when government has failed to protect natural rights, then the people can revert back to the state of nature. They may alter or... So where do natural rights come from? Right? Are they in our genes? Right? Were they given to us by, by God? I mean... Natural rights are a fiction, it seems to me. We don't have any rights. The only rights we have are the rights that the nation state can afford us. Abolish their government, as Jefferson says, so that they can recreate the government in a way that will better protect the lives, liberties, and properties of the people. Now, keep in mind that John Locke is writing against a different backdrop. While Thomas Hobbes was writing against the backdrop of the English Civil War, John Locke was writing against the backdrop of the glorious and 
almost bloodless revolution, comparatively bloodless as far as revolutions are concerned. But this was a revolution that didn't see a lot of fighting. The king uh, just uh, was kind of ousted. There's uh, William III, uh, William and Mary fame, and he's on his horse acting like he's about to go to battle, but sorry, William, there's no battle. Oh, what was that? Well, then, it's graphic organizer time. Uh, if you'd like, you can uh, download a copy of this graphic organizer from my website, www.tomrichie.net slash euro, or you can just follow along with us. We are going to compare and contrast Hobbes and Locke in a simple graphic organizer. Now, first of all, we're going to make some comparisons. Keep in mind that when AP asked us to compare, they're asking for similarities. So let's talk first about how Hobbes and Locke are similar. First of all, the original state of mankind was the state of nature, or the state of war, as Hobbes would call it. And is government established by divine right or by social contract? It's established by a social contract. So in both of these, Hobbes and Locke are in agreement. Now, how governments are established, they agree. Well, what do we do from then? That is where they disagree. Now we're going to contrast. Keep in mind that when AP says to contrast, they want differences. So why government? Hobbes says that we have government because this is to protect us from ourselves, while Locke says that the purpose of government is to protect our natural rights of life, liberty, and property. They disagree on this point. As far as where sovereignty resides, where is the ultimate power? Do people give up their sovereignty when they institute a government? Does government rule over them or is government their agent? Hobbes says that people give up sovereignty for their own good to an absolute ruler and they cannot take it back. When they have created a government, they have crossed a Rubicon, so to speak. While Locke says that the people maintain sovereignty, that the people create a government to protect their natural rights, and if that government ceases to protect their natural rights in a way that's better than if they were in the state of nature, then they have a right to overthrow the government. So that's a point of disagreement. Can a government's power be limited? Hobbes says no. Locke says yes. So this makes Hobbes an absolutist and Locke a constitutionalist. When government is not doing what it's supposed to do, do we have a right to overthrow it? Hobbes, who says that sovereignty resides in the monarch, says that no, there is no revolutionary right. Whereas, So a lot of this would depend upon the situation. So the United States is largely defended by two you know, gigantic moats, the Pacific Ocean and the uh, Atlantic Ocean, while a country like Germany with no naturally defensible borders probably has much more need for an absolute monarch than a country like the United States. Uh, Japan is in a perilous situation in that they have very few natural resources. They probably have much more need of an absolute sovereign as compared to, say, a country like Australia. As John Locke says, that if there is a long train of abuses and usurpations, if government is not doing as good of a job protecting our natural rights as we could do ourselves, then yes, we do have a revolutionary right. Well, that about sums it up for Hobbes and Locke. If you like what you heard. Okay, pretty good video there, Hobbes and Locke, right? Hobbes is much more uh, in line with absolute power of government and very much more like uh, Carl Schmitt. Before the explosion of European philosophy during the Enlightenment, most rulers claimed their right to rule from what we call the divine right of kings. They claimed that their power came directly from God. And people being very religious, well, they didn't really question. And Ricardo says Locke and Hobbes are both wrong. Sovereignty lies with whomever holds the monopoly on violence. Well, both uh, Locke and Hobbes would say that uh, if the government 
doesn't hold a monopoly on violence, then the government is not sovereign. So you have no sovereign if there's no monopoly on violence. So you would then be in a state of war if you have state of civil war, if you have many parties with uh, the power to you know, wage violence and war. Anyone free to try to replace that monopoly with their own but they must face the consequences of trying to off the king and failing. Yeah, so even Hobbes, the, the propounder of absolute government, recognizes that uh, people have an absolute right to try to preserve their life. And when people have an absolute right as an ends, they also then have an absolute right to any means to preserve their life, which could mean violence, which could mean lying, deception, trickery, Anything that you need to preserve your life is accepted by Hobbes as legitimate. The Enlightenment, however, saw the development of what we call social contract philosophy. The idea of a social contract aims to explain the relationship between a people and government, where the belief is that the right to rule comes from the people. These different philosophies, however, saw that social contract in very different ways in terms of how much freedom people should give up to their governments and to the rulers in exchange for security and protection. The first philosopher we're going to look at here is Thomas Hobbes. Now, Hobbes believed that human nature is inherently destructive and that at their core, if left to their own devices, we would have violence and chaos and society basically disintegrated. In his book Leviathan, he wrote, in the state of nature, people are in that condition which is called war. In such condition, there is no place for industry, no culture of the earth, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death. And the right, so there, there are no rights in a state of nature. You have no right to property, you have no right to anything in a state of nature, from a Hobbesian perspective. John Locke has a much more benign view of the state of nature. The life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So in terms of the social contract, Hobbes very much believed that the most important thing to have is this strong authoritative figure that he called the Leviathan, we might call them monarchs or even dictators, but they wouldn't get their power from God. What Hobbes believed is that people... So when you then get a sovereign who steps into the state of nature and provides some order, right, he is going to restrict your liberties, right? He's going to have restrictions on speech, restrictions on how much of your income and property you can keep. He's going to even possibly restrict... Know, where you live or how you conduct your life, right? That doesn't make the sovereign like Nazi Germany or like the Soviet Union, right? Restrictions on freedom aren't ipso facto Nazi or communist, right? All sovereigns have restricted to varying degrees the freedom of their subjects, right? In exchange for those restrictions on freedom, subjects get some rights, some rights to property, uh, some rights to expression, some rights to gathering, all right, and some rights in security. People would voluntarily give up their freedom knowing that if they were left to be free, they would descend into chaos and violence, and that people should willingly give up their freedom to that authoritative figure. Okay, there's a great story in the news which uh, sheds light on all this, and that's what's uh, going on in El Salvador. Like El Salvador used to be among the most violent countries on earth, right? And El Salvador has what I'm told is an authoritarian ruler who has basically decimated El Salvadoran gangs who are destroying the quality of life. So giving up the freedom to belong to a gang 
has massively enhanced the quality of life for El Salvadorans. So in Los Angeles, right, uh, a mile or so from me, that there used to be a neighborhood that was going downhill where there's a massive amount of crime. Talked about that on a previous show. And you had the development of a gang database so that if you're in a gang, there are all sorts of restrictions on your freedoms. You couldn't gather with other gang members in public in many different areas. And so at one point, about half of African-American men between 18 and 25 were in the, the gang database in Los Angeles. Then you had the uh, crime reformers come along and get rid of the use of that gang database. And perhaps as a result, we've had a massive uptick in, in violent crime and other crimes in Los Angeles. So if you restrict the rights of gang members, if you imprison super predators, you massively increase rights for regular people at the, at the cost of decreasing rights for super predators. So this is the New York Times. El Salvador decimated its ruthless gangs, but at what cost? Right In the year since El Salvador declared a state of emergency, the government has delivered a stunning blow to the gangs that were once the ultimate authority in much of the country. So when the MS-13 gang ran the neighborhood of Las Margaritas, one of its strongholds in El Salvador, there were rules you had to follow to stay alive. You couldn't wear the number eight because it was associated with the rival 18th Street gang. You couldn't wear the brand of sneakers the gangsters wore, and you could not, under any circumstances, call the police. People couldn't complain to the police because of what the boys would say. Right? The gang became the authority, the sovereign in this system. So El Salvador is the smallest country in Central America. It was once known as the world's murder capital. Had the, one of the highest homicide rates anywhere in the world outside of a war zone. But in the years since the government declared a state of emergency to quell gang violence, deploying the military onto the streets in force, the nation has undergone a remarkable transformation. Now children play soccer late into the evenings on fields that were once gang turf. Right? Uh, people garden next to abandoned buildings that used to be used for gang killings. Homicides have plunged. Extortion payments imposed by gangs on businesses and residents, once an economy unto itself, have declined. You can now walk freely. All right, the gangs in El Salvador no longer exist. But critics say this has come at an incalculable price. Mass arrests that swept up thousands of innocent people, the erosion of civil liberties, the country's descent into an increasingly autocratic police state. Most El Salvadorans appear willing to accept the deal. They are fed up with the gangs that have terrorized them, forced so many to flee to the United States. Right? The vast majority of people in El Salvador support the measures and the president behind them. El Salvador's president has approval ratings around 90%. Right? That is the highest on earth. Right? There's no other president that has approval ratings of 90%. Joe Biden is lucky to have approval ratings of 40%. Donald Trump is lucky to have approval ratings of 40%. So Hondurans chanted this guy's name, cheered him at the inauguration last year of their president. So people in Ecuador, where violence is rising, think more highly of the El Salvadoran leader than they do of their own leader. So we have all these politicians from Mexico to Guatemala vowing to emulate the El Salvadoran iron-fisted approach. So would you be willing to sacrifice some civil liberties for more safety? I would be open to sacrificing some civil liberties to more safety. So we have one expert in Maryland says, I remain incredibly pessimistic about what this means for the future of democracy in the region. The risk is that this becomes a popular model for other politicians to say, well, we could be providing you more security in exchange for you giving up some rights. 
So the Salvadoran government arrested more than 65,000 people, right? More than 5,000 with no connection to gangs were put behind bars before they were eventually released. At least 90 people died in custody. Human rights groups have complained about mass arbitrary arrests as well as extreme overcrowding in prisons and reports of torture by guards. But in what was practically the most dangerous country on earth, right? Uh, you now have a high quality of life. Here. John Locke, however, believed almost the polar opposite of Hobbes. He believed that people were born with what he called a tabula rasa, or a blank slate. And there was no inherent anger or destructive tendencies in people. And so if left to their own devices, people would find a way to better themselves and just better society as a whole, being given as much freedom as possible. And so Locke believed the utmost importance in society was a limited government that served to promote people's life, liberty, and property. And about this, he wrote, men all being naturally free, equal, and independent, so no one can be deprived of this freedom and subjected to the political power of someone else without his own consent. The only way anyone can strip off his natural liberty and clothe himself in the bonds of civil society is for him to agree with other men to unite in a community so as to live together comfortably, safely, and peaceably, right? So Locke believed that, you know, not only should people be free to enjoy their rights and freedoms, but they had the right to select their leaders and their governments. And Locke believed in what's called a representative democracy. This idea that we select leaders to make laws on our behalf, knowing that we're rational, making rational decisions to select good leaders, and those leaders are going to act rationally to make good laws that are going to protect those freedoms of ours. Furthermore, Locke believed that if we felt that these leaders aren't acting in our interests anymore, we should have the power to overthrow those leaders. And this could come in the form of a revolution, but more commonly, we see this in the form of elections in our liberal democracies around the world. Rousseau, on the other hand, went in an entirely different direction altogether. He believed that all these freedoms and society that Locke's world would create um, would essentially lead to the kind of corruption and destruction that Hobbes talks about. And his saying is that man is born free, but everywhere in chains. So all these social structures that have been set up are what lead to corruption and jealousy and the disintegration of society. So then if you strip away all of these elements, what's left? People being free together in total equality, making decisions for what's best for the community or what Rousseau called the general will. Without this situation where all of a sudden you might start getting power inequalities between people that lead to corruption as Rousseau saw it. And so in this world of Rousseau's, decisions are made together by the community. Laws are made directly by the people of the community. And sometimes you might get your way, other times you might not, sometimes maybe you don't get Okay, we have uh, Claire Cord joining the show. Claire, how are you? Hello. Long time, no talk. How's it going? I'm very well, very well. Um, look, yes, yes, sorry, I had a few uh, windows going. Yes, yes, we're very, very good to see you. Very um, uh, nice to speak again after so long. Um, I was just thinking how great it is to, to have our online communities when we have, you know, really quite special relationships with each other, when we can basically say what we think about each other and then still speak to each other afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I, I count myself very lucky. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So how long has it been since we've spoken? I, I'm thinking a year, two years, something like that? Yes, I think it must have been, yes, yeah, about two years. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Hey, what happened to that woman who was imprisoned for writing songs mocking the Holocaust? Do you remember her name? Do you, do you know what happened Alison to her? Alison yes. Yeah. Actually, as it happened, I mean, I was just thinking of her today. I just called her up. I think she hung up on me, so I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I think she's well. She's well enough to hang up on me. Um, is, she, is she released from prison? Yes, yes, she was out last year, and um, we we had a bit of a disagreement because, you know, basically I I was saying to her, look, Alison, you know, why don't you just say that your views on Jews are exactly mine, and then then all the um, the heat will be on me because then you'll come running after me saying, well, what exactly do you think about Jews? And now, and, 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 you know, I would be saying things that they wouldn't like, but, but not in the kind of Holocaust denial way, you know? And um, um, may, maybe I was a bit too persistent and now she's not talking to me. And what is your attitude towards uh, imprisoning people for, writing songs mocking the Holocaust. I'm I'm completely opposed to that. I'm completely opposed to speech restrictions on, on things like the Holocaust. I don't think it should be a crime to, you know, take any position whatsoever with regard to the Holocaust. What's your way of thinking? Well, I think it should, it is absolutely wrong. There shouldn't even be, you know, any Holocaust denial laws. I mean, it makes a nonsense of, of us talking about the free West. I mean, you know, David Irving in prison because he said, what, the wrong number? Well, what number is Holocaust denial? You know, how much below six million can you go without, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, your Holocaust denier, you know? So, so nobody really knows. And I guess the whole idea is that we are to shut up about it. But, you know, what is a historian to do? Um, you know, I, I guess he genuinely wanted to know, and I don't think he was saying uh, that no Jews died. He, he, I think he, you can be a Holocaust denier if you say Hitler didn't know about it. That that that's you know it's so wide ranging. Oh yeah, and and in Israel, um, they can't even deny their own Holocaust. It's like, well, I mean, Jews is your Holocaust. You can deny it if you want to. It can't you, but it seems they can't either. Because um, um, Rabbi Misraki um, famously was accused of Holocaust denial. Um, I don't know if you know the story. A little Do bit, you? but why don't you go ahead and relay it? Okay, so so basically his his position is that um, um, Orthodox Jews only consider you a Jew if your mother's a Jew, and 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 the is it the Nuremberg laws say that you're a Jew if just one of your grandparents is a Jew. So so their definition of Jew is far wider than the narrower, stricter, orthodox sense. So he was saying, well, you know, if if the Germans are the Nazis were so so widely defining the definition of Jew, um, and, and we only define it if your mother is a Jew, then um logically six million should be divided by Four, making one million or so. Hmm. And, yeah, he and got, he got a lot done. of trouble for that, I think. Yeah, yeah, but it's logical, you see. I mean, it's logical. You can't, you know, wriggle around that. Um, but but he got, you know, he... he well, I mean, Netanyahu himself, he, I mean, I think he said something about, 
oh, I don't know, some, something about Hitler wanting to expel them or something. I, I forget now. But, but they, they, you know, he was being threatened by the other Jews. Oh, you're straying into Holocaust denial territory, which is which is crazy. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's basically a weapon for for politicians to, you know, use on each other. Um, and you can't, you know, I, I think it does need to be discussed because, you know, I, I mean, I, I've been trying to explain to Alison that, that actually it's not really the Jews who go on about it. It's the British government. The British government have to explain to, well, to the British people, like, you know, why did we declare war twice on Germany? What did we get in return except the loss of India and the loss of our empire? Um, so, well, actually, it was a pretty stupid thing to do. And and when you think of um, Poland, it, it's sort of, well, not that long ago, I think in the late 1600s, um, Poland had a Saxon king, i.e. a German king. So so basically, both Poland was Germany's backyard. You know, it, mm -hmm. it would be. So, I don't know. It's just the hypocrisy of it that sickens me. And, and, and everybody just kind of using Jews as a totem. And, and actually, they don't want it. I know Melanie Phillips was saying, you know, she didn't want no Holocaust memorial in, in Westminster um, because... You know, it was just sort of, I don't know, it, it was a tokenism and, um, okay, anyway, we, we know they're not all agreed about it and, and we know Jews are really very divided people. Um, and, yeah, um, yeah. So how would you say that your own thinking about the world has developed over the past two years? Are you still uh, largely sticking with your ways of understanding from two years ago or have you moved in any new directions? Well, it's still the same idea, but I have new ideas for um, promoting my idea. I, I don't know if you're aware that, you know, I'm using the Noahide laws to rag before Gentile religions, and I'm kind of nagging the Orthodox rabbis, why don't you rag all before Gentile religions? And if you rank them in the way that I expect you to do, then Islam would be, you know, the most Noahide compliant. And and Christianity would be the least, and you know, and, and they won't do that, of course, because they don't want to offend Christians. And um, um, and as for the Muslims, I I keep reminding them that you know they haven't obeyed chapter eighteen, verse four of the Quran, which is to admonish those who claim that God has begotten a son. And I've been putting it to, to them that, you know, they have been, you know, more or less cursed by God if he exists because, you know, because they didn't convert the Europeans. The Europeans wage crusades on them and, and you know, from then on they have become victims of Western imperialism that they're still whinging about. So I, I thought it was, you know, really quite interesting that, you know, well, people cherry pick bits, bit, you know, bits of their scripture that they like and just ignore the ones that they think they can get away with ignoring. And and um, and then bad stuff happens. I mean, mm. I mean, if, if you if you believe the, you know, the, the whole idea of God making Jews his chosen people in order to discu discourage idolatry, you know, to civilize the world, basically. Now, do you believe in God or do you primarily believe in God as a is a vehicle for getting people to behave well both i mean i mean you know i i, I keep saying oh, well i'm agnostic but then i i okay i do this this um principled agnostic thing so so because i'm not sure i have to you know explain 
events and phenomena through, you know, through history, sociology, psychology, you know, that kind of thing. And then I, but then I have to do it the other way, which is to say, well, um, this thing happened because it's punishment, divine punishment or something. And as long as, you know, both, both um, views point to doing the same thing, then, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of double confirmation. Uh, a bit like technical analysis. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea. Uh, not sure that I am. Um, okay, so so basically, technical analysis is is for people who trade on the stock market or you know anything, um, I don't know, commodities or whatever, and and they want to determine whether the market has peaked or bottomed out, and there are different ways of determining to do this, and 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 if you use a range of different method methodologies to say, right, this is the top of the market, and and you know it, it's going to go down now, or this is the bottom of the market, it's going to go up now, then you, you know the trend is your friend and you can buy you know whatever thing you're going to buy or, or sell whatever thing you're going to sell and and you know you you make a profit that way um and um, technical analysis is, is just using you know di different methodologies to to determine you know when the market has peaked or bottomed out and and if more than one methodology confirms the direction of the market um you know you you, you may feel more secure in your trades and um, and, and I'm saying, you know, I'm using these two methods. It's like, well, um, you know, j just from psychology and law and stuff alone, you know, you you know, the West obviously needs a moral system, and America doesn't have an official religion, and and that has been a problem. Um, you know, it, it didn't. Okay, it's happened now particularly badly because the rot has already deepened and widened and you know it's everywhere but um it was bound to happen anyway because um if you don't have a moral system then um you know congress your legislature can, can basically make any laws they like and if you don't like it well too bad they control the legislature and they can you know keep changing the laws and um you know make you lose your legal action because they control you know all you know the the executive the judiciary you know the legislature and and the you know our ruling class is always going to win because they control it's like a banker but you know in a game of monopoly right you know the mm -hmm. banker has access to the money and if you're not looking he might you know help himself to a few thousand well, hundreds of thousands of pounds dollars whatever so you're mentioning in your conversation with Stephen J. James that I, I have no principles. And obviously, I don't think of myself as having no principles, but I think of myself as someone who's constantly changing his mind, that I, I see new ways of understanding things. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is better. This is more efficient. This is more effective. This is more to the point than previous ways of understanding things. So do you see or is there no difference between a person with no principles and a person who is constantly changing his mind are they the same thing or is there a meaningful difference well um this was this was a conversation i was having with somebody at speaker's corner today and, and i think it, it is basically do you have any principles you would die for and of course people will will say okay i don't know what people would say maybe we'll say you know maybe i won't die for any principle but if you're going to pretend you will die for any principle, you know, there, there should be one because, I mean, if you say, no, there's absolutely no principle I would be prepared to die for, then, um, you know, 
maybe you should lie about it, even if you don't. Uh, um, I, I guess that that, that that is, you know, fundamentally what it is. And um, about, you know, truth and, you know, what is reasonable and, you know, what is moral. And um, and, and I think Judaism is, is very, you know, firm about it, you know, Kiddush Hashem. Um, you know, in certain circumstances, a Jew is expected to sacrifice his life. Um, if if ordered to bow before idols, if if ordered to to commit adultery and murder, um, he'll have to say, "Well, you just have to kill me then, um, because I'm not doing it." Yeah. So, what do you think's more important for? Let, let's just limit it to intelligent people. So, people with IQs over one fifteen. What's more important that people have principles that they are willing to defend? or that people have interests that they are willing to defend? Should people be more devoted to principle, or should people be more devoted to the interests of their people? Well, principle is, is really, you're, you are devoting yourself to the to, to, to the interests of your people, because, you know, all these principles, they come from moral principles, and moral principles come from religious principles, and of course, religious principles come from religion, and if you don't have them, then, you know, it's basically, well, your interests that you are defending, and, um, and, and, and that can be, well, changeable, as changeable as the weather, and um, I, I guess, I, I, I guess I think in the olden days, um, if people accuse you of being an atheist, they, they were virtually accusing you of being a nihilist, which, which means that, well, you know, if, if you don't believe it, that, that God exists to punish you in this life and the next for your or the next for your sins, then you're, you're just going to lie if you think you can get away with it. You're just going to you know, kill and steal and do all kinds of things if you thought you can get away with it. So um, well, calling somebody an atheist would... would be virtually, you know, kind of cancelling them if, if the accusation sticks. Yeah, it used to be that way. It's it's not that way nearly as much anymore. Well, it's not like that at all because everybody says, well, everybody lies, everybody steals. I mean, if, if I could get away with it, I'd do it, you know. And and the, the, the whole idea of, of, you know, having religious principles is completely lost. And and, and, and I was saying the other day that, that you know, it is actually better to to break a rule knowing that you are breaking it because um, because at least you know it and and if you break it and you suffer you think oh well I, obviously I shouldn't have broken that rule and um, you know compared to somebody who didn't who doesn't even know he's not supposed to break it because then you know okay it, you know he does something and it hurts and and then. You know, you know, it hurts for a bit, and then the next time he, he has this overwhelming urge to do it again, um, he'll do it again because he won't know that he was never supposed to have done it in the first place. And and I guess if we have no uh, principles to guide us, what it really means is that we are like cattle. We can be easily controlled by being um, bribed or threatened, and and we will, you know, well, yeah, we will behave like cattle. If you bribe us, we will accept. If you threaten us, we will refrain from doing the thing you don't want us to do. And and, and this is what makes us so so easy to control. So as any regular viewer knows, I've had a period in my life where I was quite promiscuous for, for about two years. Did you ever have a period of promiscuity in your life? Yes. 
And I, what was that like? Um, not very nice. Um, because, and, and, and then I thought, well, I'm not going to until I fall in love. And I did wait and, and I did fall in love and um, it went very well. Um, so so I, I think a period of restraint um, to, to, yeah, yeah, to, to take stock um, would be better than sort of, you know, going straight back in. I, I believe, you know, men think, oh, I have to, you know, have lots of sex uh, or have lots of different partners to forget about the pre previous partner that I want to forget. But, um, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea. And, you know, may maybe the whole idea of casual sex is just bad for us psychologically because we, we kind of, you know, get ourselves into this idea that, you know, around the corner is somebody even better than what we have. And we never settle and we never settle down and um maybe our lives are you know less happy for that i don't know right but i wasn't asking you about what's right i, I think pretty much everyone here agrees that uh, promiscuity is wrong uh, i was just curious about your experience of it was it exciting did you feel liberated what was your experience of promiscuity as opposed to theorizing immorality about it well you would think um yes it's like oh well you know kind of another one and you think i mean there was a time when i thought there was some anything particularly clever about me promiscuous as a woman you know it isn't at all because i think it is part of feminine privilege to always have more offers of sex than you are prepared to accept while it is actually different for men you know which is more performative a man has to chat a woman up and you know small talk or whatever entertainment hospitality and all the woman has to do is well sit pretty and and how old were you during this time like i was 26 in, in my 20s yeah in, in, my in 20s. your 20s hmm. and and what type of men did you find yourself attracted to older men Hmm. Um, uh, that's always been the way. Generous men or powerful um, men, famous men. Yes. I I think um I think um most women really want um to be taken shopping by their fathers or or you know have a man that they can look up to and think oh how wonderful we know so much and whatever. And I think perhaps you know men who um, have had happy men relationships with their mother um kind of want to marry a woman like their mother and what did you learn about yourself from this period of experimentation um that, that i didn't particularly enjoy it i i think i was supposed to think i was being clever but but actually it, it's, it's nothing at all you know it's like well of course i'm pleased you know also going to have sex with you you're a woman you're in your 20s why wouldn't they if you're available and then all they have to do is ask nicely and and how attractive were you I, my experience is that women have a very keen sense of their own attractiveness uh, were you highly attractive moderately attractive what's your sense of your own attractiveness oh. to men during this time i don't know i, I mean i guess i was possibly attractive or possibly well, attracted enough to get the men that I um, was very happy with. 
Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're well above average. For, for one thing, I assume you are not overweight. I mean, you, you're you still a slim woman. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I think uh, recent, in recent years I have lost weight. Yes. And, 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 and kept it down more, more easily than, than when I was younger. Hmm. And uh, what about married men? Did you stray with married men during this time? Um, well, I did um, know somebody who was, um, yes, married, and he was a, a journalist. And, and I think you might even know his name, which is why you asked the question, yes? I don't know anything about, about it, so no, I don't know his name. Oh, right. Well, well I mean, he's somebody that um, Kevin Grace has mentioned more than a few times. Oh, okay. I, I'm unaware. Um Okay. Oh yes, he was a journalist and a writer. And did that? Did you struggle with the morality of that when you were in your twenties, or how did you think about it when oh, you were not younger? Not at all. Not at all. Well, well, you know, women in their twenties don't think about things like that. Yeah. Um, and 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 also, um, you know, people will say, "Oh, well, what a terrible thing to do." And I thought, well, 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 he died married to his wife. So, I mean, I I didn't, you know, wreck any homes. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about men from this time? Did it change your understanding or opinion of men? Well, I learned that I was very lucky to, to have met him. Um, and I know that, you know, other women have not had my, um, my good fortune. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, terrible stories by, by women or how badly they were treated. And um, I, I think that the stories are getting worse now. Because men are worse now, and, and so are women. And, and it, it, you know, it, it's, it's terribly sad how, how much, um, how much women, men and women hate each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and, uh, it's certainly certainly a very raw time and and it's completely or it's largely removed from communal restrictions so it's a very individualist time traditionally you know families and, and communities would be highly involved with with matchmaking but now when it's just individuals you have much more latitude and people get into trouble well people are so fussy i mean i i used to I mean, there was a time when I thought, oh, I know so many single people, I'm going to start a, you know, a marriage bureau dating agency and whatever. And then I realized, you know, oh, the men were really terrible. And, um, um, and, and, and the, you know, other dating agencies that I'd come across were, were, were really, you know, just selling a dream. I, I mean, I, I, because I'm interested in these things, I mean, I know there was a time when, when, you know, if you're 35, if you're over 35, forget it, they're not even going to have let you have, you know, but, but now, you know, the age keeps going up. And um, um, I mean, I think the methods are, you know, very, very unscrupulous. Because I think um, for for women of a certain age, um, you know, they pay lots of money to to um, join these um, 
dating bureaus and um and, and then you've seen private eye which i used to subscribe to and it's like you know um if you're a man in your 50s um you know come register with us you know we, we just need you to take out a few women a few times and you know you'll have fun and and it's on us don't you worry and and, and then i worked out you know these these men in their 50s were were before women in their 40s but of course you know um men in their 40s wouldn't be interested in women in their 40s. Um, they would be women interested in women in their 20s. And, and, and therefore, you know, these women in their 20, in their 40s have, you know, really not many people interested in them at all. But, but you know, because they paid for, for this um, 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 introduction agency and the agency promises, you know, at least, I don't know, two dates you know, every six months or something like that, you know, some, some minimum, um, they were just getting these men free as long as they, you know, could be said to come from a certain background, you know, with a certain accent. Um, yeah, it was such a scam, really. Now, the way that I've often dealt with the lack of love in, in my life, you know, my, my failings at uh, developing r loving romantic relationships is by a quest for attention, which, you know, would, would partially satiate my, my need for love. But then, you know, nighttime would come and you know, the darkness would descend and my own dark thoughts would, would descend upon me. How have you struggled to the extent that you have struggled with a lack of love in your life? How have you filled that hole? Um, I, I don't feel lonely just because of the internet. And um, I, I, I mean, I do have a network of, of um, friends and family and, um, you know, what I do online is so all consuming anyway. Um, but, but I mean, in a way of, of sort of, um, um, dating and stuff. Uh, may I suggest the three adjective rule? Um, maybe it works for for you know people of all ages, but I think we should focus on the the um, characteristics of our ideal partner, which is nothing to do with wealth and attractiveness and whatever. It's it's you know uh, you know ju just three things. So so you know it, it's nice and easy, and you can remember and um, and and to go for it and. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe think of, you know, three characteristics that, that you know, you, you think um, you could offer them. Um, and, and actually, in a, in a way, um, you know, men are very, very um, stable and consistent in, 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 you know, what they want. You know, they want a woman to be younger than they are um, and loyal and pretty and sweet-natured um, and, and, you know, Actually, men are not that fussy, but the women are. Uh, is it fair to say that you're more comfortable with talking about what should be rather than what is? I mean, I ask you about what is, and you want to shift the conversation to what should be, which is fine. But uh, is that oh, remind is that me of fair? the question? So sometimes I, I actually. Um... Yeah, how do you fill the hole that comes with, how or how have you filled the hole? that comes with a lack of love in your life? Oh, you mean a, a, a romantic? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't feel the need for romance. But, you know, because I, I mean, I, I was saying that, that, you know, what I do is so all-consuming that I would be a terrible um, wife to anybody because I'm online. Or I, you know, it's like I would rather, you know, just do stuff in front of the computer than, you know, cook and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. 
So, so um, let me translate that. Perhaps uh, are you staying very busy, and that obviates the need for love in your life? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, a I I, I don't feel lonely. B, um, okay, I don't find any men attractive. And and okay, and and what I find really annoying about Western men is that they have no principles. I'm I'm sorry, Luke, but I mean That's maybe fine. I'm just projecting a lot of stuff onto you. Um, and you know, I look at you. You're a good-looking guy. You're you're smart, and 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 you know, I just go crazy when um you know you say something that I consider to be unprincipled. Yeah. And, so, and, and, you know, maybe that's what most women want. They, they just want, you know, a man that they think, oh, he's got principles. I think I can trust him. Mm, mm. Do, you, do you find men or women in general more or less trustworthy? Do you find women more trustworthy than men? It depends on... Okay, it, with with my friends, it's like, you know, some people you, you can trust with your secrets, some people you can trust with your money, you know, different people have different characteristics and, and you have to work out, you know, what it is safe to trust them with. Um, and um, I think that's it, you, you know, you just have to know, you know, what people are like. So I don't like putting my head on the pillow without some kind of, auditory accompaniment so i i leave audible books running all night because if i was just to go to bed without some kind of audible book running in the background i would very easily start to think about where my life is lacking uh and particularly that would become acute if i'd wake up at like 2 a.m and then i'd just become flooded with regret and disappointment and unsatisfied longing and my thinking would naturally turn to Know, seeking some kind of uh, release, such as looking at pornography, which would not be good for me. So I try mm -hmm. to keep my mind on track by running, you know, letting audible books just run all night. And as I move in and out of sleep, there's, you know, some audible book that uh, keeps keeps my mind from going off the rails. So what do you do? Or is that not a problem? Like if you put your head on the pillow after a busy day, do you just go right to sleep? Do you wake up at 2 a.m. and have to face things that you'd rather not think about? What do you do at night? Um, I, I'm afraid I, I, I sleep um, on a sixpence, as they say. I can just sort of doze off anywhere. And, um, um, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm like my father. He, he could do that. Um, it, it was my mo it's, it's my mother who complains of insomnia. Um, I, I, I actually don't have difficulty falling asleep. Maybe I should worry a bit more about the future, but for some, for some reason I don't. Um, I, can't, I can't even explain it. Um, I, I used to have these fears more, more than, um, you know, when, when I was younger, you know, you think, oh, where, where, where am I going? What, what's going to happen to me? And, um, and, and actually, when, when I think about it, you know, objectively, I, I should be more worried, you know, as one nears what, you know, one's end and all that. But um, for some reason, I, I don't feel that dread that I used to feel. Um, because, okay, I, I'm just saying that, you know, there are lots of people who, who would rather not marry at all. I mean, you were talking to Dubert earlier, and, and I, I just sense that, 
Duvet sort of knows he's supposed to get married and he's supposed to show concern that he's not married. But I don't think he really wants to get married. And I know um, a lot of men, you know, would rather not. Um, they find the whole idea terrifying. And, um, you know, for people, for men who find themselves single, I think, you know, it, yes, if you want to keep looking, but, you know, um, if you can't find a decent woman, as so many people can't find a dis decent partner of any kind, you might think, well, you know, at least I'm not stuck in a terrible relationship and wondering what the hell I'm doing, you know, but this time with somebody next to me, you know. Uh, forget about romantic love. You need just right regular agape love as the christians would put it in, in your life like real life you know in in person is it necessary for you to have people in person who love and care for you oh yes i mean you know members of family and you know people you see from time to time yes yes that is necessary yes and how do those people who love and care for you how do they regard your online ventures to the extent that they know anything about them well, the, 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 okay, the, the, a recent um, dis, um, discovery of mine was, um, I used to think, you know, Wignats were the worst people, they're so crude, they're so stupid, and whatever, and then I, I, I started kind of monitoring this group, and, and they, the American, the, the Christian, the middle class, and and why are they neurotic? The, 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 you know, the, they just talk nonsense the whole time, and... Um, and I thought, well, at least the Wignats, you know, know who they hate, know who they blame, and they just go on about it, and, and it halfway makes sense, even if you don't agree with it. But what are these middle-class people talking about? Because they, they kind of want to talk about politics, and they're too afraid of each other. And, and, and one of the streams that I was, was listening to was, they were just talking about boundaries. It's like, um, um, how, what can we say without hurting each other's feelings? And, and, and oh, shouldn't there be somebody to stop us from hurting each other's feelings and i thought what the hell you know oh, well I, okay i thought it was a bit crazy you know that, that what, what what about touch hunger like the human being needs to be touched what do you do did you are you conscious of that need is that something that's important to you or are you oblivious to that and it doesn't really matter do you, do you need to be touched? Forget sex, forget romance. I'm just saying, you know, hugs, you know, holding hand with a friend. It's something that's uh, completely platonic. Well, well yes, I have that. Um, you know, you see a friend, you hug them, hello, and hug them goodbye. Um, you know, some, some friends are more tactile than others. Um, oh, but I just assumed you meant, oh, you know, sleeping, snuggling up against somebody at night, that kind of thing. Um, no, I, I mean, I don't... There were times when I thought, yeah, but, you know, uh, I, I guess I, I'm used to not... Um, um, not sharing my bed anymore. And, um, and because I sleep so well, I guess I don't really think that much about it. And, and I, I guess, you know, because I'm, I'm a woman on a mission, so, you know, maybe maybe this focus has sort of expelled all other things that might have encroached on my mind um, before before I started this. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on the phenomenon of friends with benefits, people who are friends who are not interested in a long-term romantic relationship, but they meet each other's needs for physical intimacy? Um, I understand the concept. Um, it, it's not something I I would want. Um, 
you know, just because it, it's kind of hard to, oh, it's confusing, I suppose. You know, you think, you know, half your needs are satisfied and you think it's okay. And, oh, I don't know. Anyway, I haven't, I don't have the sort of arrangement. Um, and, and I suppose to the extent that, that I, I had arrangements that might resemble it, it was just, they were just relationships that didn't, you know, work, didn't go forward. Now, one I never thought of it mm -hmm. like, oh, you're just a friend with benefits. No, I, I mean, it just feels so cold. I don't think I could do it. I mean, I, I think I would have to think of myself as, you know, being a little in love with a person, you know, rather than thinking like that. It, it seems to me that most women regard sexual relationships that don't lead to marriage as, at best, a waste. Is, is that fair? Um... I suppose, I mean, th there are women who, who um, want to marry. Um, actually, I have a girlfriend who, who, who seems to be um, looking for marriage, but, but I mean, I, I think she's sort of more, more into dating and telling me stories about them than um, actually marrying. I don't think people know what they want, Luke. I mean, I mean, that that's a sad thing. They, they don't really know. And I think the older you get, the fussier you get, you know, with your, uh, while well, you sit on depreciating assets, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I suppose, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, feminism has caused this kind of emotional holocaust in so many people. Um, not, not in a sense that they, I mean, I think, it makes them hard to relate to people anymore because, you know, they meet somebody, you know, halfway nice, but they treat them casually. And, and you know, it's a kind of self-sabotage, really. Is, uh, is getting a massage, is that something you would consider a treat or something that's a burden for you? Uh, a platonic oh, yeah, massage? I, I definitely have a massage, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but what, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that, that could be erotic, right? I mean... It, it can be erotic and still, you know, be legal, like, you know, short of short of the, you know, an orgasm. But it's a regular massage, but there is an erotic element to it. It can be. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last time I had a massage was a, a Thai massage, and it wasn't erotic at all. They, they sort of wrap you up in their pajamas and then they, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, they walk on your back kind of thing and then they click every bone in your body and, and there are other people in the room. So, so not erotic. Um, and um, how long, how long ago was that? Oh gosh, it was about 20 years ago, I think. Yeah. So you, you haven't had a massage in 20 years. No, no, I, I was going to tell you about a more erotic massage, which I don't think men have, but um, so there was this girlfriend who said, oh, there's this hairdresser, it's, it's this, I, I don't even remember what it's called anymore, but you go to the ordinary salon and, and um, you, you know, they pull all the hot towels over you and they start with your hand and they kind of massage your hands it feels quite nice and then they um they, they kind of massage your uh, you know, just the top of your chest and mm. um 
and, and yes, it's, it's actually tremendously erotic. And, and my friend was saying, you know, she was saying, oh, I nearly orgasmed because it was so wonderful. Um, but yeah, you, you just go to this ordinary hair salon that you go to cut your hair and, and they give it to you. And do um, they massage your head as well? I mean, do they wash your yeah, hair? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all. Um, well, it wasn't, an, it wasn't actually to do with, with the hair at all on this occasion. They, they just say it's a sort of, I don't know, a hand massage or something. that mm -hmm. they, they called it something very coy like that. Um, but, but the hands are, are very sensitive. Well, what about the feet? Are your feet sensitive as well? Yes. Um, well, I, I, the only thing I can remember, what, what was it called? Um, there's a name for it, isn't there? The, the, oh, all the, manicures all... and pedicures. Do you, do, you, do you get many pedis, manicures, pedicures? No. And often there's a massage thrown in. No, I, I was trying to think of this sort of Japanese sounding foot massage thing. I, I can't remember the name now, but I had this girlfriend who was craning for it and she wanted to experiment on me and um, and I, I prayed I fell asleep. So um, I can't really vouch for it. So if but you it, were going to treat yourself with, say, one of these modalities, uh, what what would be a treat for you in 2023? Yeah, I mean, the, the massage thing sounds good. I mean, I wouldn't mind. Have you Not ever had an, no. Yeah, have you ever had an Alexander Technique lesson? No. What, what's that? I, I know it's your thing. I, I'm sorry, yeah, I, I haven't thing. really read up about it. So is yeah. it a kind of massage thing? Uh, no, but it is. Uh, frequently it's hands-on, hands -on, though. You can also teach it just over Skype. Uh, it's a way of noticing where you hold unnecessary tension, and then the teacher brings your attention to that area and helps you to release the unnecessary muscular hoarding and tension patterns. Yeah, I, I suppose that, you know, a, a lot of tension can be received, you know, just by somebody, you know, just touching your shoulders in a nice affectionate you yeah. know, way. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. So one phenomenon of the distant right is that people have a really hard time uh, doing streams together. Like everyone breaks up and... <laughs> Everyone, you know, every partnership falls apart. And uh, do you have any thoughts on this phenomenon? Well, I'm, I'm, we've got back together again, Luke, haven't we? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like hallelujah. And, and and it's sort of like, yeah, you, you are kind of like family because, I mean, you, you need members of your family and you can't avoid them at, you know, weddings and, you know, whatever. So, so in a way, you know, okay, so it's great to have people that you can just say whatever the hell you like about them and, and, and they still have to speak to you, you know, for, for reasons of their own. So, so I, I think, I think, um, yeah, it, it's it's a different kind of relationship, but, 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 I think very therapeutic. Who have you done most of your streaming with over the past two years? Um, I, I would say I've been streaming with Vincent lots, and um, I, I, I joke that it's like you know I've died and gone to heaven. I can talk theology, you know, the whole time, which you, which I can't find anybody to do at all, and they, they get all jittery because. Um, but but I, I think theology is the next um, development for advancing politics because um, because of the you know irresistible narrative it has and and its political consequences. And do you feel any discomfort with doing a live stream with a homosexual? 
Not at all. I mean, I, I regularly invite um, Vincent to become uh, uh, the first American secular Quranist. Um, and, and the incentive I offer him is, is that he, he can use it to get revenge on these, you know, weak nerds and these heterosexual white nationalists because, you know, they're, they're obviously too afraid to, you know, be one of the first to accept the um, the logical inevitability of secular Quranism. You know, okay. if you want social conservatism and that sort of thing. And what's his attitude to that? Well, he, he, he wants to do his thing. I mean, he's just saying no because it's not his idea and he wants to promote no-hideism. But no-hideism no is, is also a form of social conservatism. And um, we're kind of wondering um, which, you know, which, which will become popular because... I don't think there's anything else to, you know, for, for Westerners who want a bit of social conservatism back again in their lives. Have you had any interactions with uh, Quantum Jen, you know, that, that woman into quantum mechanics? Uh, no, no. I mean, she's blocked me on all the streams and uh, no, I haven't. I mean, I do listen to, to um, Jen and David bickering. Um, it's quite fun. It's it's like listening to an old couple. Um, I know David is really annoyed with Jen for not accepting his offer to pay for her trip to Sicily for the um, consciousness conference. And um, it, it's quite comical. Um and and it seems that you know Jen wouldn't you know I I think she she made up some story about um, you know Duvet wouldn't be enough to protect her from all the people who you know have it in for her or something and she needed her a posse before she would feel comfortable going to public events or words to that effect. So do you ever lose sleep when you fall out with someone you live stream with? Um. I'm, I'm afraid I, 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 I mean, somebody, somebody on Facebook was pointing out that, that, um, I, I, I do, um, I, I do, uh, risk my friendships, um, you know, particularly political friendships. I uh, like Alison, you know, because I, I've been saying, you know, look, you're not going to get any justice because even Trump is not getting any justice. Even Arthur Goldberg is not getting any justice. So why don't you do things my way? And um, she, she took great offense to that. And um, I, I think she may not be speaking to me. But um, I, I felt I had to keep asking. And now she's annoyed at me. Who was that 12-step guy that you were friends with? And I was a little bit friends with him too. I think he's on my show. Do you remember... What do you mean, Jay Walker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's going on with you and Jay these days? Um, well, I'm afraid I, I just got so fed up with him because he... Um, did, did you ever see a, um, a comedy called Little Britain? I'm not Have you sure. Heard? Yeah, oh, okay, but but anyway, there's a character who's played by a man and, and she's this terrible woman and she, she says, yeah, but no... But when when she's a surprise about something, and and um and, and Jay said it, and I guess he never heard the end of it because I think saying this sort of thing is is just evidence of our dementia and and degeneracy, and and 
uh, okay, I'm afraid I think he uh, is unprincipled too, and erotic, and, and he can't, you know, stick to his guns on anything, and he will keep changing his mind. And, and I guess the basis of, of Jay's neurosis is, is that um, he can't make up his mind whether Christianity is kaput or not. Because, you know, on the one hand, he, he sort of knows it is. On the other hand, he knows that if he says it is, I'm going to push secular Quranism in his face. So he, he's basically going round and round in this revolving door. And, and yeah, every time he does that, I get angry and shouty and sweary. And um, um, But, but, but he, he, he appeared on Quran U. So, so we're not completely not talking to each other, and, and and social media is useful. I guess you know every now and then we exchange insults, and and that's a kind of communication, um, which I find quite comforting, really. Uh, so I spend uh, fifteen dollars a month on dental insurance, and if I have cavities, I, I get them filled. So I probably spend about two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars a year on on my teeth. And uh, that's that's been how it's been for 25, 30 years. Do, do you think someone's spending, say, $300 a year on the, their teeth, do you think that's excessive? Do you think that's vain? That's a very good deal. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> very good deal. I, I must look into it to see if I can get the same thing. So, so what, what sort of a... It's just, it, it's just uh, when I sign up for my health insurance, there's you know the oh. option to sign up for, for vision insurance and dental insurance, which is about $15 a month. Then I usually, I think I get a free checkup twice a year. And then if I have, if I need fillings, it's like $50 a filling. That's my, my copay. So I've, oh. you know, I've had at least like one dental checkup pretty much every year for, I think, my, my adult life. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, technically, you're supposed to, to, to go twice, and then they, they, they push you to, to you know, seeing your hygienist, right? Yeah, and then they often dentists trying to upsell you with this or that. Yeah. So so you, do, do you go to the hygienist much? Well, I go once or twice a year. And right, so... right. Do they, do they give you a really attractive one? Uh, or, or is it sort of... Very rarely. Uh, oh. I, I can't even remember having an attractive hygienist. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they, they do this strange thing. Like, um, I mean, I, I, I thought that was unusual, but, but basically, yes, she, she's sort of, you know, hovering over you, and then suddenly you get a, a breast in your cheek. Mm. And, and you, you're, you're not sure if it was intentional or not and what you ought to say about it or... You know, but but I don't know. Then you settle down and you, you know, you, you enjoy the experience, I suppose. What I don't like is when they're supposed to be polishing your teeth, but they start polishing your gums, and you know they start bleeding. That's I don't like. That. Oh, that's that's bad. That's yeah. bad. I don't and, like and, when and, you and don't and get horrible. the competent uh, hygienist. So I'd rather have a competent hygienist than an attractive one. Yes, yes. I mean, I've been fortunate in, in that the ones that you know are you know very you know young and competent and whatever I, I mean i had a really bad experience once and um, she she spilled water over me and you know there was just something in her manner that completely you know triggered me and yeah i i just sort of got up and left because i was just so offended at you know her dripping water down me i mean like really really incompetent so yeah and so, these things matter so much yeah yeah 
I mean, you want personal you want touch. Confident. I mean, yeah. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Competence versus touch. So in that area, I'm going to go with competence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I no. can't even remember having an attractive dental hygienist. I, I know they exist, but uh, I'm not sure if if I've had any. So uh, my my fi- famous uh, question: Have you read any books lately? Oh, just around in the Bible, referring to it to make my points. I'm afraid. Um, and I read Wikipedia every now and then. I, I, it does sound bad, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it is a bit bad. What about you? Is it the effect of the internet? Yeah, uh, because I'm, I'm reading mm-hmm. the whole time, and then when I'm not reading, I find myself playing the phone, and 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 then you know when I rest, my eyes are you know I'm asleep in well no time at all. So, so I just read a book by Barbara Ray Venter. So it's called I Know Who You Are, How an Amateur DNA Sleuth Unmasked the Golden State Killer Changed Crime Fighting Forever. So she talks about the use of uh, DNA testing to unmask uh, murderers. So I felt that I, that was fascinating. Then I'm reading a biography of Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century English thinker. And I'm who, reading... Who wrote Le- Leviathan. Wrote Leviathan. And I'm reading a book by a rhetorician on Donald Trump's rhetoric. It's called Demagogue for President. So she analyzes Donald Trump's rhetoric. So I'm about a quarter of the way through that book. Ah, very good. (laughs) Do you have a favorite writer? Do you have a favorite writer? Like a favorite, you know? Mm, uh, For philosophy, Stephen J. Turner. He's a professor in Florida. So... I've, I've probably read about 10 or so of his books. Uh, as a novelist, probably Tom Wolfe, the, the American who wrote Bonfire of the Vanities, A Man in Fall, uh, My Name is Charlotte Simmons, and Back to Blood. Uh, like, you, go ahead. I was going to ask you if, if you've heard of Trollope. I have Trollope. heard of Anthony Trollope, but I haven't read his book, uh, Vanity Fair. I don't think I've ever read a book by Anthony it's Trollope. It's not by Vanity Fair. I mean, so he didn't write Vanity Fair. He didn't? It was somebody else. It was somebody else. I forget his name now, but it, it wasn't him. I, I can look it up. But I've read that Vanity Fair too. But it's the same sort of style, I know. But um, I, Yeah, I he was a 19th century novelist. Yeah, I, 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 I would say Trollope is my favorite um, writer. Ah. So... William Makepeace Thackeray wrote Vanity Fair. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah, I haven't haven't read. I'm uh, I'm going through War and uh, not War and Peace, um, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by uh, Edward Gibbons. So I've got wow. that as an audible book. So I'm about uh, twenty five hours into uh, like a one hundred hour production. Yeah, I mean, I I have a very shortened version with, with lots of pictures. But anyway, he blames Christianity, doesn't he, Gibbon? Gibbon yeah. Does. Yeah, it's uh, um, it's not a it's not an easy or a quick read. Yeah, I mean, you, you I, I suppose the gist of it is is enough. It, it's not a pleasure to read, is it? Or, or it's or not? it's a very demanding pleasure to the extent that it is a is a pleasure. It's uh, I, I find it demanding. I mean, I I can't read Shakespeare for pleasure. Like for me, Shakespeare is work. I have to get mm-hmm. commentaries to try to understand it. I have to listen mm-hmm. to lectures. So. I mean, Shakespeare, the most revered writer in the English language, 
but I haven't attained a level where I can just read him for pleasure. It is, it is work for me. I have to work at it to, you know, get things from it. It's mm -hmm. like doing push-ups. You know, I know it's good for me, but I don't usually enjoy doing push-ups. I really recommend Trollope. I, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what you think of him because, I mean, for him, it's such a pleasure to meet him. And, and his characters come alive and he, he really understands women and, um, and, and he, you know, he doesn't lecture you the way Dickens does. And um, um, I, I, I think you will really enjoy his books. If you give them a chance, if you don't mind, you know, he's a Victorian writer, but, but I, you know, I, you know, I think that the, the Victorian writers are when, you know, Britain was at its height and, you know, things were as it should, should be and, you know, that there was order and, I don't know, um, you know, a, a sense of um, arrival and stability, though, of course, it wasn't, you know, it was only illusionary, but, um, um, yeah, it was my favourite period anyway. Yeah, we're always in liminal space. We're always moving from... You know one one thing to to another so yeah any any stability must you know reside with god because life on earth is continual flux mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna oh. wrap wrap up the show but any any final words for today oh I, I, the, the last question i was going to ask you is, mm -hmm. is if you've tried any austin jane austen oh yeah i've read i think i've read every every major novel certainly by jane austen yeah and she mm -hmm. she is a pleasure to read Yes, yes, I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah, she's she's great fun. Very, very smart, very wise, very witty. Mm -hmm. Right, like a man, they say. There's certain styles that, that, well, I think she was pretending to be a man when she tried to get herself published. Um, perhaps one day you will read the Quran. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read sections of it. I haven't, haven't read it all the way through. Do you find it a pleasure to read? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I read the Penguin and J. Darwin translation and I, you know, it's like, wow, this is really quite fun. And I, I, I finished it really quickly. But it, but it was, you know, he's an Iraqi Jew, isn't he? And, um, you know, he, he just translates it in a, in a more memorable and easy to remember, um, yeah, just better prose, I think, than the others. But the Muslims don't like him, but, but I do. Okay. Okay, Claire, great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for having me, Luke. It's been such a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye.